Hello and welcome to episode 212 of the Crate and Crowbar. Tom, you can have that rum. <laughs> I knew you were going to throw to me right as I was drinking it. I, I saw <laughs> the future for a moment. Spit take all over the mic. <laughs> <laughs> uh, it is the 26th, 8th, 28th, 26th, 26th of October. Yeah. Hmm. 2017. My name is Chris Thurston, and tonight I'm joined by Tom Senior. Hello. And Tom Francis. Hello. And Tom is enjoying his rum. Well earned after that intro. (laughs) (laughs) I saw you gingerly reaching for it as I began to speak and then take your hand back like, oh, I got 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 my window. A forced vision of what might happen in uh, about 30 seconds time. Put your hand to your head. (laughs) Images flash through your mind. And that's how memories and experience work. (laughs) Uh, So it's quite a, so it's just a big week. It's a big old week. Um, particularly today when you're listening to this Friday, the 27th of October, um, because apparently all the games are coming out at mm-hmm. the same time and all of the news is happening at the same time. So we'll start with the latter of those two things. So the Steam Halloween sale began today, now, mm-hmm. right now, at the time of recording. That's the thing. I haven't really had tons to, to look at it properly and figure out if I will purchase I just got an email to tell me that um, things on my wish list are for sale. My wish list is a bit random because it's not really like things mm. that I'm holding off on purchasing exactly. It's more like things I'll get to that Sunday, but I don't need to buy it just yet. Um, and so I know that Streets of Rogue is on sale and Stories Untold is on sale mm-hmm. and um, something called Cosmic Trip, which I don't remember adding, but I think it might be a VR thing because every now and then I add like a, if I see a really interesting VR concept that doesn't look, necessarily look like a game I'm going to get super into, but just seems like an interesting experience, I'll add that. Uh, I think that's a VR thing. Mm. Stories Untold is a good get. Mm. Uh, it depends what they've discounted it down to, but it's a good get anyway. So maybe just get it. The interesting thing for me about uh, Steam sales is that um, um, customers love to know when they're coming. And developers hate that customers know when they're coming. Hmm. So, like, uh, Steam sales stories, when, you know, the dates leak and stuff, they do incredibly well on PC Gamer. Like, <laughs> gamers want to know when they can kind of camp and then snipe the thing they want to get for a little bit cheaper than normal. Yeah. Uh, and, you know, obviously for developers, it's a nightmare because, you know, people are just going to not buy your thing at full price and wait for it to you know, come down. Yeah. Uh, streets, oh, sorry, stories of, stories untold is 66% off. So it's £2.37. Oh, well. Jesus. Wow. Buy it for that. Like, yeah. Yeah, holy shit. That's uh, cool. And Streets of Rogue is half price. Hmm. Um, yeah, I got, um, I got, notif- I got a item on your wish list is on sale notification, um, because the only item that's in my wish list is Tyranny, hmm. which I haven't bought because I know that you thought it was average, Tom. I think if you've not beaten Pillars yet, yeah. then there's, there's better more to Oh, I'm playing Divinity as well, so I've probably got enough CRPG in my life <laughs> oh, at the moment. Yeah, but, quite enough. Um, but like, and that's been discounted up to 13 quid, which I still think is a good, that's good value for mm. a chunky RPG if that's what you're looking for. Um, but I got this notification on my phone as an email, on my phone as a Steam notification, on my iPad as an email, on my iPad as a Steam notification <laughs> at the same time. Wow. Um, which was how I found out that the Steam sales started. <laughs> um, yeah, Valve, uh, as a developer, Valve sent you an email telling you these dates, uh, all three at once. It's a bit of an onslaught. It's like Halloween sale. Then autumn sale, then winter sale. I won't say when they are because I can't disclose that information, even though uh, someone uh, has <laughs> dates have been widely reported. Who can say if they're correct? I would, couldn't possibly comment. Um, 
and yeah the, the email is very specific about do not disclose these dates to anybody and you sort of look at your watch thing okay one two three check the new sites <laughs> there it is um because they're you know the i think the days when developers were a small trusted group of partners with valve are long behind them this is they've literally opened up to just anybody now it's just you know um plenty of people in fact steam is kind of geared now towards um uh don't necessarily prevent the bad people getting on just make sure that you don't promote their stuff to anybody and don't give them like any easy ways to exploit it let them in but have them die in steerage class <laughs> yeah so the concept of like you know emailing all developers and actually hmm concept of emailing all developers and, and trusting them with any private information is ridiculous but as soon as i said that i realized they actually do have a kind of tiered system in that there are certain features you can't have in your game until you sell a certain number of copies. So you can't have trading cards um, because mm. that was to combat people just creating bullshit games just to sell the trading cards and somehow make money off that. Um, so maybe they only send these emails to the trusted developers who've <laughs> sold a thousand copies or so. Um, but <coughs> if so, that's clearly not working. <laughs> but personally, as a developer, I, I, I would tell people that if I could um, because I don't really want people to buy it like the day before it goes on sale and then feel annoyed mm. that um, they paid more than they should have. What they should do is tell everybody who gets one of those emails the correct dates but tell each of them that the sales themselves are going to be called slightly different <laughs> things. <laughs> so you so, can... <laughs> you won't believe this but it's going to be called sale 36946. Yes, exactly. <laughs> no, generate like a random string like a giffy cat. <laughs> like it's going to be called the unruly western warbler bird. <laughs> sale you think it'd be called the halloween sale but it's not <laughs> and then you'll really know who your who your leaks are that'd be great um uh, yeah and then you can i don't know break the kneecap i don't know what you do with information <laughs> but you can at least know um so yeah i thought we're in a position to really advise about this particular scene top also because there are so many of them yep feels yep. like it's less of a kind of uh yeah but the other big change that's come along with this is the new Steam curator system, he said, having no idea yeah, what that is. Yeah, this isn't actually live yet, but there's a beta you can get in on. And they are um, sort of expanding the curator system, which they haven't really done much to in a while, I feel like. I remember like it launched a long time ago, right? I want to say more than two years ago. Yeah, ages ago. Uh, it must have been more than four years ago, because I was a journalist, I think, when it launched. Does that sound right? We've had a quite incredible um, one for not updated often but it, it does exist <laughs> yeah like I think once upon a time there's an idea that every game we recommended on the podcast would end up in a Steam curation list <laughs> <laughs> uh, there's still some great games in there it's a really good idea um, I too uh, have a long dormant <laughs> curator list and I think probably about 60% of curators <laughs> have a long dormant curator list um, and they're trying to combat that um, or they're trying to make it more appealing for players curators and developers and, so better then yeah uh but they they split their blog post about this into, into those three categories and explain how they're improving it for each of them mm. um and some of it's a bit uh slight or nebulous or hard to sort of picture how it's going to work exactly but um so for players it's, it's just stuff like uh, we'll try and look at games you've bought and then look for curators who've recommended games like those and then recommend those curators to you. So you basically give you a, a list of recommended curators who might be of interest to you. Um, for curators, they are letting them uh, sort of design their page a bit so that they can like feature a game. Um, I know that one thing they wanted to support was um, uh, some people 
uh, like to do a sort of game club where they pick a game every week and say get their followers to play it and you can't sort of do that with the current curator system and so they're going to support that um, but probably bigger news is that they can embed their videos now so if you're a YouTuber you can embed a YouTube video next to your mm. game recommendation so people can just click it right there in mm. Steam and, and watch the thing uh, which is kind of cool um, and then uh, for developers I was reading this one in that order and uh, technically I'm all three of these things but um it was the developer section that made me go, oh, awesome, because um, they let me do a thing I've always wanted, which is uh, you can just, uh, you will be able to just look at curators who you want to give a copy of your game to and just click a button and say, yeah, you can yeah. give a copy of my game. And then curators get a list of here are all the people who who are happy to have you give you their game for free and they just click on it to get it. Um, That's really cool. Yeah. And it's tied to their, uh, you know, it'll be like the official NerdCubed account or whatever. Um and it'll also sort of integrate stuff like telling you how many subscribers they have on YouTube and how many Twitter followers they have and stuff. So from a developer's perspective, that's awesome because there'll, there'll be loads of people you haven't heard of um, who are actually huge. And also um, the main thing is just like, you know, trying to promote heat signature, um, trying to get it out to streamers and YouTubers ahead of time. Um, a lot of them have contact details. It's actually, I think it's got better because Gunpoint, it just seemed impossible to get hold of anybody if I didn't already know them. And I was sending like messages to YouTube's messaging system, which had a 0% success rate. Nobody's ever looked at those. That, that exists. Um, yep. YouTube has a messaging system because they, back then, like almost no one had an email address you could actually get to publicly mm. these days. Cause it's all a lot more people are on networks and stuff. And uh, you know, it's a lot more organized. Um, you most DM people, people as well, right? Like, um, uh, on YouTube, Twitter, yeah. uh, Twitter. Yeah. Uh, yeah. If, if either their DMs are open or they follow you, um, and most big people don't leave their DMs open because they get flooded. Um, so these days there is a business email for most of these people, which is good. But, uh, like I'm sure 90% of them are just a sort of clusterfuck of spam and, and bullshit that they can't filter through. And I always thought like the thing I'm offering, even if you haven't, even if you don't know what the game is or anything, if you could just, if you knew the email was a free copy of a thing, for a large number of, of these people, it would be worth just glancing at. It'd be worth looking at 10 seconds of a trailer just to see, is this something I'm at all interested in? Mm. And knowing you have a free copy of it, if you are interested, is, is incentive enough to do that, I think. Um, but my email is going to get lost amongst a hundred other people who are offering them much less interesting things that, um, or not even offering them things, asking them to, uh, promote stuff and, uh, do sleazy deals and, or just outright spam. And yeah, it always bothered me like there should be a system for this. There should be some way they want the thing I'm giving them or at least they'll be briefly interested in it. And I desperately want them just to glance at it just once. <laughs> and uh, now hopefully there'll be a way to do that. Yeah. From like uh, most bits of a piece of gamer, this is potentially brilliant because we get loads of people pretending to be us mm. and going to developers and PRs and, you know, with a fake email address and saying that they're representing us. And we get loads of emails from PR saying, is this legit? It doesn't seem legit. It's all spelled wrong. <laughs> and the guy who's requesting a code is called Knobsaws Kingslayer <laughs> or something. Uh, and uh, so, yeah, we have to say, no, that guy's not legit. But um, yeah. the deputy artist from 2000. <laughs> <laughs> uh, the idea that um, devs could kind of just give us their games directly through Steam and we're like a verified account that people can just send stuff mm. to is, is, is perfect. It's, you know, more secure. There's less room for scammers and stuff. And plus it does, you know, like we get a lot of bizarre kind of, um, loads of games that like we've just never heard of. And we'll get a PR email that says, Hey, are you interested in having a key for this? 
and don't say what the game is even and <laughs> just we don't have time to even respond to ask for a yeah. key if you know what i mean like uh, so just the direct feed just directly to, to us would be amazing i think help us a lot yeah it's a cool idea mm. i hope it works out because you know, you know the, uh, some you know famously steam has been a test bed for yeah. these kinds of systems that haven't done what they were intended to do mm-hmm. but they had um a fun little uh joke in the post where they're talking about how they've improved it for curators and one of the things they have uh, they're gonna do is um uh, they want creators to have more of an idea of what effect they had by recommending a game did it cause any more mm. sales or whatever mm. so they're going to tell you that and in the, the bit where they explain this they say um now we know graphs solve everything so <laughs> we're going to show you a graph of that <laughs> which is uh, uh making fun of themselves for the histogram thing that they did to uh highlight review bombing oh right was, yeah pretty widely mocked as um uh because it i think it was it was seen as val think this solves the problem and uh it doesn't solve the problem um it identifies the problem yeah and uh i i personally i don't think Valve thought it was going to solve the problem i think we were just doing something that they could do easily that they knew wouldn't have a, mm. a too big of a negative impact which is always like the difficult thing when you're dealing with 165 million people or however many it is, is like, what change can you make that isn't going to completely fuck it over for a huge number of people? I, find, I do find that interesting, though, the histogram stuff. Like, it's interesting to look back yeah. to it and just see how it correlates with news stories and with, you know, uh, forum explosions and that sort of thing. Mm. Yeah. Yeah, it is really interesting. I think I think the issue is more about how they message what their intent for a particular thing is. Mm. And, you know, it, if they say, like, on the subject of review bombing, a graph <laughs> then it's not unreasonable for people to think like so is this the entirety of your response to this yeah. is this how seriously you take it like i actually think one of their problems is um that they haven't improved yet is that when they do announce this stuff it's always in a really long block of text <laughs> it's just their blog posts are just completely wall of text no mm-hmm. Uh, there's nothing accessible or sort of uh, inviting about them. And so only, the only people who read them are people like me who are really interested and invested in these changes. Um, and probably uh, games journalists who write about it, hopefully. But then, of course, they're not going to rewrite the whole post. They're going to pick things that they think are interesting or or that they think are controversial. Like, oh, look, this seems like bullshit. I'm going to talk about this. And so uh, whatever nuance and context they did put in the original post is probably going to get lost in translation because they didn't present it well enough. Yeah, it's it's funny, like... I think a lot of the situations that Valve encounters, well, like any big developer of games, but, you know, or any company that has to manage a community that size, often it seems like a good idea to really explain your working, to try and, like, just yeah. be as transparent as you can and lay it out. And the issue with this is people don't like to read at all. <laughs> people hate reading. And I say that as a writer. <laughs> like, um, I remember when they announced... Uh, a form of not paid modding for Dota 2, but like the ability to buy like a subscription to your favorite custom game that would then give the creator of custom games some money and would get you extra things in the game at the discretion of both Valve and the creator. Mm. Um, uh, it was a weird situation because they want, they announced it through me because they, they got <laughs> in touch and said, we're going to do something. We think it's going to be controversial. So what we want is to, you to interview us, ask all of the hard questions and then post that on PC Gamer as part of the announcement and we'll link to it from the announcement. So it's an amazing opportunity for PC Gamer and it, that's because of a, like a relationship that I had with Valve at the time, specifically with regards to Dota. And so I wrote like a two and a half thousand word thing that re- like, and I don't think I went easy on them. Like it was like, you know, trying to push them on subjects like, um, what does this mean for 
how Dota is focused in the future and what does this mean? Can people sell advantages in custom games and would that bother you if people create a pay to win ecosystem within your non pay to win free to play game and all these kinds of things? And they had answers for all of it. And then when that new story came out, Reddit was just all of those questions. <laughs> like, when, what's, how are they going to talk about this? <laughs> this is an obvious problem with this system. And all the answers were absolutely there, but mm. I couldn't, I couldn't sex it up. One thing, it wasn't a video. Like maybe if I'd literally just recorded the thing I wrote yeah. as a video, it would have been fine. I don't know. It's, but it's it, that problem of like trying to articulate the, the delicate subtleties and sensitivities of engineering a system for a huge audience that can't, where failing a thousand people is actually quite a big fuck up, even <laughs> if you're failing a thousand people out of 500,000 or 5 million, uh, is difficult and takes a lot of words. And yet people, the vast majority of people also don't want to read. So it's like a chicken and egg problem, mm. a chegg, if you will, that <laughs> you can never fully uncheg. <laughs> After years of watching comments, comments, sorry, to misunderstand articles, I do think there's like a, a reading comprehension problem fundamentally with either people who are coming into the article who where for whom english isn't their first language necessarily mm. for whom people they might be a lot younger you know they could be you know it could be any age coming onto your website really and they you know you see lots of misunderstandings where people just misread things and get things wrong and then yell about it in the comments and then other people go oh yeah that's right without yeah. actually going back and reading it and the writers don't have enough time to go back and say no actually what I said here, like, like, can't quote yourself at people endlessly, which mm. is what you always need to do to make what you're saying completely clear to everyone in the audience who comes in. Whereas with a video, just someone talking to you in quite clear language, like, it seems much harder for you to misinterpret what's being said. Yeah, yeah. It's probably why Overwatch does it that way. Mm. Yeah, it's always Jeff mm. and his pop-up banner <laughs> explaining to you his thing. That sounds weird. But then you get a voice as well, and you don't need mm. like, need the developer to appear in front of the camera. Just having a voice is well. Awesome. I mean, this is something that I've like li- literally said to Valve is like with some of these things, just put a man in front of a camera mm. or a woman, or you know, put a developer in front of a camera and have them with their office behind them say, "We at Valve would like to do this," you know, this is what we're trying to achieve, but that's really not their style. And so that's not, you know, and so, and so we're on graphs. <laughs> like, also, but also you like, you know, people who tend to become the front and center like that tend to be the brunt of all the attacks when things go wrong. Yeah. That's true. So when you create personalities, you kind of need to be putting someone there who understands what they're getting into and is able mm. to deal with that type of attention. And I guess they're not aspiring to like crime watch style documentary. <laughs> <laughs> they exactly. like have everyone in silhouette. <laughs> <laughs> like we're really excited. <laughs> <laughs> We thought the histogram would solve this. <laughs> um, yes. But anyway, so it does sound like the new curator system is kind of cool. Maybe we yeah. should use it again. Who knows? Sounds positive. We do get quite a lot of emails to the Crane Crowbar account actually asking us to look at games. And I had to kind of explain that. <laughs> Wouldn't that be? <laughs> <laughs> Not really what we do. We should get on to talking about what we've been playing. Because there is some other news we could, we could dig through this week. But uh, well, actually, up. would you guys like to get into the like the Man Veer Here stuff? Would that be an interesting subject? For oh, we week? could mention it. Yeah. So because it sort of spins off something from last week, um, which was uh, last week was when Visceral closed and uh, their Star Wars game, Untitled, mm. uh, was canned. And there was a suspicion that well, it was just spun off in a few different directions. Some of them unhelpful. One of them was that single player games are dead, which is obviously not true. 
Um, but the bigger point was that uh, linear sort of traditional 1050 now single pair experiences maybe not as appealing to certain publishers anymore because they cannot be spun out into uh, after sale profits. Mm. I'm, I'm doing a, a capitalist tickly fingers gesture. <laughs> um, like in quite the same way that a different, like an open world game can be with loot boxes and things, which has also been a controversial subject lately. So obviously they span out into a, quite a lot of different places. Um, then, however, on the Waypoint podcast, uh, ex-Bioware developer Manvir here, I think I'm pronouncing that correctly, um, who's now gone indie, uh, spoke kind of very openly, and I won't yeah. try to quote him directly, but I'll link to the article in the show notes, about um, some of the pressures that exist within EA to have after-sale microtransaction-y kinds of things in your game. He touched on how successful... Uh, the Mass Effect 3 multiplayer mode was for this. Mm-hmm. Um, Tom. Talked about a guy spending $15,000 on Mass Effect multiplayer cards. <laughs> exactly. And so the... Um, Whales a, are real. It's a really good interview. And um, also people who spend a lot of money on <laughs> games are real. And he is candid to the point that uh, I was worried for him. <laughs> I was like, my God, is he allowed to say that? Surely they'll make you sign some kind of NDA before the you... The assassins are out. They're um, abroad now. Uh, yeah, really, really candid about the inner workings of, of EA and... Um, uh, and the problems with it and yeah uh, very frank about um uh the money forces behind this kind of thing he's not at all surprised by the ea visceral decision um and this is the direction ea have been pushing in for for ages um and what was interesting about him like sharing the money side of things is i went and read uh comments on the reporting on this and uh, comments on reddit and stuff and just sort of tried to see what the sort of zeitgeist was um and it just completely pivoted from um you know uh the reaction to visceral's closure was all ah oh, fuck yeah god damn it how can they do this and uh, like fine i'm gonna boycott everything that they ever do and they'll never get any money from me and everyone was like there's a sense of like they're doing not just a bad thing but sort of a, an idiotic thing mm. like we we're here wanting to give you 60 dollars for a single player game please make those things and then uh reaction to this interview after seeing just having a glimpse of the numbers it was all much more morose and introspective. It was like, oh God, there's just nothing we can do because there's no no amount of us giving mm. them $60 will ever compare to that kind of money. And it's just, um, people are starting to see it now more as a kind of, almost like a class thing. Like um, there are enough rich people spending money on these kinds of things that they now control the industry and that it's going mm. leaving behind the people who are, um, you know, paying $60 for an entertainment product is still pretty privileged. Um, but there's, uh, uh, if that's all you're ever going to spend on it, you are no longer the target audience of EA. Yeah. And I think, you know, maybe that's just a thing. Like it's, I want to be kind of pick this carefully, but like, I think it's a shame in this context that EA owned Bioware, honestly. Mm. Um, It's worth saying that that's sort of, um, uh, the joke every time well not not so much the joke but the (laughs) depressing fear every time ea by anyone is everyone's expecting to be closed within a couple of years or ruined within a couple Mm -hmm. of years and it's worth saying that didn't happen with bioware like they've had a lot of good games since ea bought them no but i'm gonna pause it so i think there's also a publisher element here and and it's not to do with like and I've, I think I personally have been kind of slow to come to this in some ways because this publisher, X publisher is evil is such a kind of com- <laughs> common comments thread, knee jerk reaction. 
And I believe very strongly in the ability of game developers to do good work under loads of commercial pressures and external pressures, particularly in AAA. In fact, I think that is the skill of AAA is making something good when all of the mark, when you're still at the whim of market forces and, and, uh, and circumstances beyond your control. And actually, I think the inability to perceive that nuance is one of the things that makes the discussion around games a lot of the time so both toxic and unhelpful because people don't like to factor in the commercial pressures that developers are under to turn a profit with their games and so on. I think that's absolutely a thing. And so that's why I will go to bat for post-EA Bioware in, in a lot of regards because they do good work through like it's one of the reasons I went to bat for Andromeda actually it's like it's a good it's a good piece of work same with Dragon Age 2 despite being made in obviously not ideal fractious circumstances and the question of whether or not people should be paying $60 for someone else's fractious success <laughs> is is a different one but nonetheless I do think there is an issue here of publisher culture however and what different like so when we talk about the whole games industry moving away from single player i don't think that's quite right i think you're talking about ea moving away from this mm. and you at the flip side you have because you do have publishers like bethesda yeah um and we'll get onto this in a minute but they're releasing a 10 to 15 hour straightforward single player game with no matter microtransactions today as the time you listen to this um ubisoft are a really interesting studio because they kind of do a bit of everything they do the big triple a open world game they invented that model by themselves you know the they they both invented the climb of tall thing see the map icons and don't <laughs> go and clear up the map, map icons genre then figured out how to put microtransactions onto it but also create things like mario and rabbits which is really interesting you know they do a bunch of different things and then you have maybe more like you know an activision is more like matured into like a service game kind of company mm. in a way like almost everything activision does at scale is a service game. You're talking about Destiny or Call of Duty or something like that. EA, I think, are at this tipping point in their identity between a company that makes traditional sort of games that you buy once and a pure service game company. And you're seeing it in kind of agonizing slow motion as you watch studios like Visceral be, who may have been picked up in a decision at a time when they were still entertaining the idea of doing traditional 10 to 15 hour games and then get crushed in the gears, basically, of EA as it pivots in a clumsy metaphor to a different, uh, a different way of operating. And it's really shitty to have to see it in slow motion. But at the same time, I think the takeaway is just, Oh, EA aren't the company that I want to support. If the experience I want to have is where I pay once. Hmm. And that's, you know, it's a shame if what you want is a star Wars game or, a, or specifically for me, a Bioware game because I don't know when the next time they're going to be allowed to make a Bioware game is really. Um, at least not in the sense that I understand them. But once you accept that, it becomes a lot easier to not be kind of surprised and angry every time this happens. I don't know. I, I'd put a lot of this down to FIFA Ultimate Team. <laughs> I think that the extraordinary mm. success of that in a genre where, you know, introducing that to a genre that didn't traditionally have that type of yeah. system in it, um, was a blueprint to roll that out across every genre and everything they were doing. And if it doesn't have that, then what are you doing? Because hell, look at this fucking valve of money you can just open if you have that system in your game. Yeah. I think since Ultimate Team took off, like that's, they've just been like every game has to have this in now because that's just 
even if it doesn't work in that game, just for the three games that it does, it's just yeah. It's so and fun. yet, like, so I, so I was going to say, I wonder if the law is ever going to step in on things like that, hmm. which is not the like he said, treading around libel, but there's. So there's a, I think, pretty well documented, even if it's simply through a lot of anecdotes, um, you know, evidence that things like Fever Ultimate Team is quite detrimental to kids. Like I was um, at dinner earlier with my mum and her language student, who's from Spain, and when she um, heard uh, that I made games, uh, she said, oh, do you know FIFA? And... I said, yes. And she said, oh, my son loves that. And I said, um, does he buy the, the card packs? And, uh, she said, yep. Uh, for his birthday, all he wanted was FIFA points. And, uh, you know, she was hesitant, um, uh, about this, but he said to her, like, this is the best present like, I've ever had. And that's all he wanted. And it's gambling. Yep. <laughs> it, it's, but yeah. And so like, it's, it's, you know, my first Duplo gambling habit. Mm. And there's kind of not a big way of getting around that. And that's... He's so, 12, by the way. Well, okay, not Duplo then. Lego. I um, didn't mean that as a correction. I was just... <laughs> as context. Or the car note, he's cool. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not... I think it's just for now. I don't think there is a... Every kid who owned Meccano in, 19, in the 90s when I either took one on to work for either Creative Assembly, PC Gamer, or Games Workshop. That's a fact. <laughs> um... <laughs> The, uh, um, we've, we've spoken about, about this precise topic on this podcast, I'm sure like three years ago. Mm-hmm. I remember talking about with Rich Sanson about this and about how, you know, how almost poisonous it can be for yeah. like, young minds to be hooked onto this stuff and to have, if they, you know, to have easy access to it. And actually, I mean, it's been interesting to watch in the UK at least more and more parliamentary questions being raised about it there was one just this month in fact like they the, the raised a question that will go into parliament probably in the next month or so uh, and it's definitely gaining more and more traction as people sort of notice what's happening and parents mm. notice what's happening yeah i wanted to say you know i i would I, you know I, I wonder if the end one of the things that dents this attitude to game making is more modern legislation as as government catches up with with new technologies and new ways of distributing things and so on. However, this has also occurred at a time where my faith in the ability of government to legislate is not as high. Mm. <laughs> I would say I don't want to get into politics too much, but nonetheless, right? Like this isn't a time, this isn't a time in the world's history where I necessarily expect super mature forward thinking regulations on, um, you know, microtransactions within software to be uh, something that necessarily gains huge amounts of traction politically. Uh, what I'm saying is that this is a perfect thing to exist in the cyberpunk dystopia <laughs> that we are slash Mad Max dystopia that we're rolling towards. It is incompatible with the Mad Max dystopia. So ultimately we're going to have to pick <laughs> one of those two things. It'll either be kids hooked up to the FIFA ultimate team nozzle forever or kids fighting for gasoline. Like we have to pick one. Mm. Which I nozzle? don't feel like we have yet. Which nozzle? Basically, is it going to output Ronaldo's, or is it going to output pure gasoline? Pick a nozzle, kids. It's the future your parents gave you. 
Ah, sunny thoughts. <laughs> On that cheerful <laughs> note. <laughs> what have you been playing, Chris? Um, so actually, yeah, I kind of wanted to speak at the top of, uh, speaking of 10 to 15 hour single player games, I wanted to talk about, uh, Wolfenstein 2, the new Colossus, as close as possible to the top of the pod, because I didn't want to be too drunk <laughs> when I got around talking about it. And the reason for that is, uh, the game comes out today. If you're listening to this today, this podcast comes out. And, um, I have played majority of it now. I'm, I'm reviewing it, but for print. So, um, I'm a bit of a, haven't been, uh, rushing. Pardon? rushing. rushing. Well, I don't, I, I didn't want to say that because I don't want to imply that the people <clears throat> who got their reviews out, uh, for right. the embargo, which is today at the time of recording this, were rushed because I don't, th- it's not a massively long game. I don't think you would necessarily need to rush it, <laughs> but I've been kind of taking my time a little bit mm. and I feel like I'm into its easily into its second half now. Um, and I would also preface this by saying that, like, I really loved the New Order. Like, went to bat for that game in quite a big way. I was, like, really sort of delighted by how well made it is. And by its kind of mad imagination and its... The fact that it reinvented Wolfenstein so successfully. Mm-hmm. Like, everyone loved New Doom recently as well. And that is a product of the same kind of run of uh, Bethesda published successful reinventions of these kinds of games. In fact, taking a longer view, I think you could look at Bethesda's output as a publisher of the last couple of years as like probably doing more justice to the history of the PC FPS than like any other publisher by a <laughs> long fucking way, right? Mm-hmm. You have a System Shock spiritual successor in Prey. You have a Thief spiritual successor in Dishonored. You have both Wolfenstein and Doom successfully reinvented in a modern way that captures something of their spirit. Mm. Like, that's a really good track record. And Quake Champions is supposed to be all right as well. Yeah, I haven't, I haven't played it yet, but no, if, if they do bit. Quake as well, then that's, yeah. you know... It's amazing though, you're right. Yeah, like, yeah. that's, you know, maybe worth thinking about. Like, that's not, not, that's a pretty impressive track record. And I think... And what, and so I was really looking forward to the new classes. I didn't like the old blood expansion for the first game, but that's because it felt like a step backwards. Um, and I, and it's been interesting today watching the reviews come out for the new Colossus because it's gotten a lot of very glowing praise and some more, uh, measured praise. Like I, I, I like both Adam Smith's review for Rock Paper Shotgun and Sam Roberts' review for PC Gamer, which were both a, a little bit more kind of cautious. Um, what did PC Gamer give it? 81. Which is three points less than I gave the first one back when, um, I think. And so I've beaten around the bush quite a lot, which is to say, I really don't know how I feel about the new Colossus, mm. which surprises me because I loved the first game. And there's a lot of complicated reasons why I think that's the case. So to start with the good, um, I think that there are very few companies like machine games I've done an amazing job of just the technical aspects of building a shooter, just to start with the driest possible stuff. Like it looks phenomenal and the animation is phenomenal and things like the inverse kinematics of the way your body moves when you look down. Like there are so many things it gets right. Like and, Brendan Jung's going to love this. <laughs> yeah. There's just, there's just design expertise in every inch of this thing. Like as a technical work, it's very, very impressive. And that's and that then builds out into an art style that is still very very striking like this idea of so if you're not familiar with the new wolfenstein games it's the 1960s the nazis won the war and you're looking at the kind of dystopian version of the 60s that that creates and the nazis have very advanced technology 
uh, sort of airships and cyber dogs and robo men and, and lots of other things. And that all looks great and is beautifully animated as are the guns and the tech that you pick up. It is like a gorgeous looking thing. The other thing about it that's very impressive, honestly, is, uh, the kind of cinematic presentation, um, uh, both in cutscenes and outside of cutscenes of just situations and people doing things. Um, the, there's a sort of attention to detail in terms of how it depicts situations that is genuinely fucking great. Like, and I want to put that up front because I have real problems with it, but up front, like there are things, there are just little bits of technique that are genuinely startling. Like there's a moment, you, you know, a lot of things happen to you in first person in this game. Some of them are fucking horrible, like really horrible in ways that I want to get to. Um, but like, this is a game that through using only sound and very subtle animations of even and subtle adjustments to your perspective can make you feel like someone is pushing the hot barrel of a pistol into your mouth. <laughs> it's really weird that they have pulled this off, but I don't want to talk about what I think of the game's fault without also thinking about like some of the extraordinary things that it gets right mm. and subtle things as well. There's a moment where BJ, and it's still funny, but that's his <laughs> name. Um, like, uh, there was, of, can I quickly interrupt? Yeah. There was a brilliant little line in um pete hines uh interview about the marketing and relevance of, mm. of this thing in which um he was trying to talk about uh how nazis were bad and uh the way he chose to phrase it was um we won't apologize for what bj stands for <laughs> <laughs> and they shouldn't apologize to for what bj stands for um it's not william joseph if that's what you're wondering um so, um, and there's even like, there's like nuts little things. There's a detail where like you exit a cutscene. So you watch a cutscene where BJ's there, another character's there, and they're talking to each other. And at the end of that cutscene, he turns away from her while still looking at her over his shoulder. And he's wearing a leather jacket with like a sort of fur collar, like a wool collar kind of thing, mm. like a bomber jacket, like a pop collar. Right. Mm. When you cut back to first person after that cutscene, you're still looking at her over your shoulder and you can see your own collar <laughs> in your eyeline. And then it moves out of your view as the view kind of resets and you're back in the game world. You can't do that normally. If you look to the left or right in the game, you don't see your collar. It's literally just a detail that's been put there for that moment <laughs> to make that transition from cutscene to you're in control again as seamless as it can be. And that's fucking impressive. Like, you, if you, you know, if you know about how difficult game development is like that's the kind of level of detail that almost no game goes to they've not slowly zoomed into the back of your character's head and then the screen's gone black and you kind of come back yeah. up into the that's the classic transition that exactly is. right like and so it gets these things right and then so you your home base this time is like a submarine full of of a diverse and i mean that in, in the positive way like a meaningfully diverse cast of people who for whatever reason have found themselves fighting the nazis in the 1960s and Every single time you are back there, you can walk around. There are scenes happening and they're nicely animated and it's all sort of bespoke animations. And it's, you know, people getting out the toilet and doing things. And, and, um, a lot of them are quite toilet related. The game has a, <laughs> a, a poo streak mm. in some ways. Um, not a great way of putting that, but it's what I said. So we're going to go with it. Um, and all that stuff is really good. And I, my notes are half like, man, the writing in this is really good when it wants to be like 
lots of kind of believable conversations. Some of them are funny. You feel rewarded for walking around the submarine and, and mm. encountering all these different scenes. Good guns. Good. So. Cheating of the men. Let's. Uh, it's hard. So there's, <laughs> so there's every, every success for this game, and this is probably the thing I'll land on. Every single success for this game sets up something that it sucks at because it's really ambitious. And one thing they've tried to do is, um, so I'm trying to figure out what angle to attack this from. So one thing is that they have, um, the first game was kind of a horror, you know, it had some horror elements to it in terms of like nasty things happening to you in first person. They've built that out very much. Um, it also, the first game was willing to engage with elements of actual Nazi history while also being a matinee shooter adventure where you blow up lots of Nazis. And it existed in quite an uncomfortable dynamic because it wanted you, it wants, it has, the first game has a mission set in a concentration camp, but at the same time, you're also fighting fucking moon Nazis with a laser gun. And I don't know if it 100% reconciles those two things, but in context in the first game, it, it, and this is something I, I want to think more about, but like, I feel like the first game kind of gets away with some of that stuff simply because it's still very much rooted in the post-war consequences of Nazism in Europe. So it's still sort of Nazis where you're mostly used to seeing Nazis in pop culture and everything's turned up to 11 and there are things that are uncomfortable and the things that are about it that are arguably insensitive, but it hasn't sort of detached those things from their historical context fully and put them and sort of try to observe them in isolation. This new game moves the action to America where, uh, which you find out in the first game was nuked and surrendered and, and has been under Nazi occupation for 15 years. And the marketing campaign for the game, which was initially kind of not eager to draw parallels between the concept of Nazis in America and current political climate, uh, is now super eager to do that. Like, um, you know, the latest marketing thing they put out on Twitter was like a trailer that says, these are not fine people directly quoting Trump, right? Mm. Directly drawing that line. That's not reading that in. They are entertaining this. They really want you to think about it. And at that level, and so on that level, they're, they're pitching it in this way. And yet it has nothing to say in that regard, really. I don't think, um, it, there are so many things about it that I think, you know, by its simply by its marketing campaign, this is maybe unfair to developers. It feels like it's being granted this mission to act as this shooter you can play, to act as a sort of cathartic valve to kind of relieve some of the tensions at the moment that it is the perfect shooter to release in 2017. And I've read some of those things in reviews today. And yet it's a game where like it's 15 years after the end of the second world war or thereabouts. Nazis have ruled in America for 10 years at least. Every Nazi, every single person in that game wearing a Nazi uniform is German, without exception. Hmm. And they're not just German, they're cartoon Germans. They're called Hans, and they want a milkshake. People saw that scene at E3, hmm. right? Like, it's, there's still, like, um, similarly, you know, uh, it's, which is, there's sort of, it's not committed to the idea necessarily. Like, Nazi is sort of just a, enemy type really and they do a lot of horrific things um in some cases pretty upsetting things to show you that the nazi characters are bad but it doesn't it's not interested in ideology really they're they're cartoonishly fucking awful 
and there are things about it that I, I tweeted about today, but like there are things about it in that game that really deserve a content warning because there's, there's depictions of quite vivid depictions of domestic abuse and violence and, and violence against helpless people and, um, sort of arguably sexual abuse and things like that that are nasty and are presented in the same context as the kind of gun wielding, gung ho blast em up thing. And it doesn't reconcile any of these things and it doesn't really lead them to a point necessarily it really makes you feel hatred for the villains and it makes you feel got at and it makes you feel like you're in a shit situation. But I'm not sure it justifies the claims of the marketing campaign that this is in some way a reflection of real politics because while those, while, you know, obviously clearly racism is real and abuse is real. Um, and the game says these things are conducted by people, not monsters. All the game ever really shows you is monstrous people in a strange uniform with an army of robots and dogmen. Hmm that are coming you know what i mean like it's interesting i mean the, the marketing uh campaign is obviously extraordinarily opportunistic they've jumped on this moment and found an angle almost at the last minute it feels like based on how that marketing campaign has turned in the last few weeks yeah, yeah. and Do also that. given uh, the marketing campaign and the time we live in perhaps we're reading more into the game than we might otherwise have done when uh, the first game came out, for example. Yes. That were actually looking more for meaning because these forces are actually back in our lives. Yeah. And so I think, I think some of the, basically, so I, I, I appreciate that I could probably bang on about this and I actually don't want to because I, I want to get this almost out of the way because it's such a complicated subject. And part of it is that I think, I think there is a, an onus on people to really try and interrogate what the game's actually saying with a lot of things it presents. Because, and I don't want to, and I'm consciously avoiding spoilers. I'd love to talk in more detail about specific characters and things. Mm. Um, I don't personally, for me, like, for me, neither this game or the first game was particularly good at articulating the complexities of these issues. And that's not in a both sidesy kind of way. That is in fully a actually understanding the human consequences of these things rather than having them as a kind of revenge fantasy where uh it's just kicking some ass and feeling better um however in this case in this game what they've chosen to do is to drill down more into the really nasty side of life i think beyond simple like nazis are bad good guys are good into like um depictions of actually quite upsetting abuse which i'm so like i don't think they've really earned if that makes sense mm. and i think there's a a style over substance argument to be made it's it's quite similar to the way i feel about gta actually where i think the cinematic ambitions of of rockstar have always led to something that looks like it means something mm. but it's actually just a depiction of cruelty for its own sake and yeah. for its shock value and I think that's a shame because I think machine games are obviously very intelligent writers. They have very intelligent writers. They write humans really well, but I don't think they engage with the humanity of the audience. I don't know. Like that's a huge nebulous thing. And there's an issue here, I think, where games are butting up against some of the limitations of the medium where if you want to be a Nazi blast and gung-ho shooter and also say something about parental bullying, then you've given yourself a tonal bridge to cross however you're going to choose to cross it and there may be no right answers there and so on um i also have some questions like i'd love to, I, i'm really looking forward to seeing more perspectives come out about this game after it's out because um it's being praised i think rightly for its diversity and i think that's a thing right like it's so rare to see this many um 
sort of, you know, you could point to this game if you, if you were from, if you'd had your head under a pillow for 10 years and you came out and you saw this as a change in the way that games depict women and people of color and so on in this year, you'd, you probably would appreciate how far things have come because it's a much more diverse cast and it speaks much more intelligently about race and the language we use to describe gender and so on. However, however, at the same time as it does that, it also uses every single stereotype in the book. And it does both of those things at the same time. I think it's really challenging our critical ability to like process that happening at the same time because you want to praise it for including such a diverse cast and you want to criticize it for the fact that every member of that diverse cast uh, sort of behaves according to cinematic stereotypes about the people mm. that they represent. It seems like they've stayed true to the, the kind of pulp roots of the first, of the new order. Yeah. In that, you know, um, pulp is all about, you know, just get a character in a page and then the next page they're, you know, saying things about themselves. Maybe, maybe that's, that's clashing with, uh, the, I've not played it so. Yeah, it's it's, arcade, I think that's right, though. I think so. I think they're trying to apply that kind of pulpy, grindhouse sensibility of the first game mm. to a much bigger set of issues, and it's not quite the right fit because, in some ways, you want to give these characters the the ability to be free of the grindhouse, basically. Um, you know, like that's a bigger subject, and honestly, it's, it's one where I want more different perspectives on the game. Like, um, because I, you know, while on one case it's to be commended for having a very prominent, um, sort of, uh, sort of black woman in a leadership capacity in, in the resistance and, and that character is really interesting and the game depicts things like breastfeeding that games don't tend to dwell on. But there are elements that I, th- I feel are drawn from grindhouse action, you know, and depictions of race and gender and so on that, I don't know. It's a big fucking mess of a thing, I think, tonally. Mm. And fascinating. Way more interesting than games normally are in that regard. But is that a good thing? I keep, I've been skimming reviews and, um, I will read a paragraph about how, uh, sort of sophisticated and powerful it is and how it uh, speaks to these big themes and has, um, characters you love. And then the, the screenshot above it will just be like, what looks to me like a Warhammer Terminator with a tomahawk in his head <laughs> and the players holding two giant automatic shotguns. <laughs> yeah, exa- exactly. Mm, this has a tonal exactly. contrast. Like it, and it, it knows it as well. It's smart enough to know it and it's smart enough to, uh, it's, it's a weird thing. Mm. And I'm still sort of getting my head around it. Like I feel like it, it exposes the weaknesses of games in some ways. Cause I think a lot of it's, it's, it's a, uh, I think if you transplanted half of its scenes into a film, they would be laughable. <laughs> but they they kind of work in the context of the game because of how ridiculous everything is. But it's still, I don't know. Um, and I think to sort of dial things back into more material kind of useful thing, and maybe to get to your point about like, is the shooting good? Mm. So I don't think purely as a game or as an experience it is as good as the first game. And the reasons for that are partly, I think they have taken on, and this is the important thing, they've taken on bigger thematic kind of narrative ideas and done a weird job of it <laughs> where it's better in some ways than most games are but is that something you let the hook off where blah, 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 we get into a bigger i think people will be talking about it for a long time and that maybe is worth experiencing like experiencing this thing that, I think, me. Yeah. I, that makes me more excited about it, it in a way it feels uh, in that regard it feels like a bit like a bioshock infinite to me mm. 
where people are going to go nuts for it and then people are going to realize, oh, actually, you know what I mean? Like it's, it, mm. yeah. Um, so the other side of it is that, so the first game had this amazing thing where it just seemed to keep getting bigger. And I think part of that was the surprise element of first Wolfenstein, this Wolfenstein reinvention that was so kind of off the wall and hyper violent and stuff. However, this one seems to me to be a bit stuck in like having nowhere to go after where the original left it. Um, you know, like things that really like from the first game, I remember things like the whole, like, you know, the, when the moment you realize you're going to the moon, you know, like these kind of moments of like mad escalation and the fact that the gunplay kind of kept escalating and you were this sort of phenomenal, like double massive shotgun wielding force of, uh, extreme power. And also you could be stealthy and kind of mix all these things together. Those things are still present, but to my experience so far, none of them have been as successful as they were in the first game. And that's just some, some weird decisions. So, um, uh, no spoilers, but at the very beginning of the game, the first mission in the game, and I think this is a super cool decision. This is something I think genuinely is cool. The first mission in the game, you're in a wheelchair. And you have to try and play an FPS while you're also in a wheelchair mm. with all of the things that involves, including not being able to go upstairs. So, um, uh, and your health is capped at a bit of a lower thing. And you're rolling around, gunning down Nazis and like trying to do your best while in a bathrobe and a wheelchair kind of trying to get around, which is a really interesting idea. Like initially it has this, interesting sort of every mission is going to feel really different vibe. And I was really excited about where that might go, but it doesn't go anywhere. And it doesn't, um, it gives you the sort of rudiments of its arsenal pretty quickly, but also pretty slowly. Like it treats giving you a bigger version of the gun you've already got in terms of the rifle, like as a moment, like the, the, the guns are, they feel nice and they're, they're loud and exciting, but they don't, they're not very, you have seen them before pretty substantially. Also, um, the scenarios you have seen before largely, but it also makes a really weird decision for basically half the game, which is to cap your health really low for plot reasons. Um, and have it regenerate up to a number that's even lower than that. And then to have you rely on armor for one thing, armor pickups. Hmm. But if you pick up any health over 50 and if you have a sense of what it's like to have 50 health left in doom or whatever, you'll be in about the right mindset. Whenever you pick up health over that, you start ticking back down to 50 because that's overcharging it. And, um, and this means that you basically like, even on the, there's two kinds of the six difficulty settings. And I started on the third one and went down to the second one and still found it really frustrating. So that's like a hurry up mechanic, isn't it? That's a, yeah. that's a, just it's a hurry forward, up mechanic, right? but you're also at your weakest. So you feel encouraged to stealth things, hmm. but stealth is punished by both the UI, the AI, and the level design uh, into being unlikely unless you quick save a lot. And I don't think that's a, the most gratifi- gratifying version of a shooter experience. Oh, that's strange. Cause I remember the, the first game being extremely good balance of like stealth yeah, it's and not. action stuff. I really don't think it is. Uh. I think they've, I think for the first half of the game, they actually fucked up that balance quite badly because you, you kind of get that moment where you've been seen and you want to like, okay, well, fuck it. I'm pressing the dual wheel, but right. two shotguns, let's go. And then you die. Like, you can be killed almost immediately. And because like the first game, it still has a problem with its damage indicators not being very clear where you're being shot from. Hmm. You'll die and you'll be in the death cut scene. And then you'll realize that a man just like mantled over the window behind you and you didn't see. Hmm. And so, and for some reason in the first half of the game, particularly it kind of, it quite likes dumping you out of a cutscene into a last stand surrounded oh, situation. 
and all of them. And I don't think I am shit at shooters. I think, I think it's, I feel relatively confident saying that like I played the first one on harder settings and enjoyed it. This I just found grueling and that's a shame because, and it's simply because of this truncated health pool. And then a very, what feels like a very deep way into the game, like pretty deep into the game without spoiling anything. It gives you your full health pool and some kind of like gadget special powers y kind of things that that not not revolutionary, but like the ability to barge through walls and that kind of thing, which feel cool. It's way better Hmm. and way easier, which is a really weird arc for a game to have because it means that like I was pretty sick of it by the time I got to that point and I loved the first game and then suddenly it got better, but now it's on its downhill slide, like downhill slope narratively. Like I'm getting towards the end now and it feels like it's only just started. It's a really weird decision. I think like it could have started where it just, where it gets to halfway, if that makes sense. And there are some interesting surprises along the way and kind of plot things and cool moments and things like that. But like, it feels like that bit they committed to at the beginning of the game. Like we're going to make you feel powerless, but also powerful at the same time by having you be a, bathrobed man in a wheelchair trying to save the day is overextended into the first half of the campaign in a way that actively hurts it as a shooter like clearly this game was designed in a sandbox way with a hundred points of health as it's uh you know value we expect the player to have ish most of the time so to half that I don't know. It's a, it's a point I've dwelled on a lot because I literally, I had my, I found myself DMing people who I knew were reviewing it to ask them if my game had bugged. <laughs> like, was I supposed to get the rest of my health back? That kind of thing. And I, I, this is the sort of thing I would always hesitate about writing in an online review because you end up getting the, oh, you know, get good, get better at it kind right. of thing. But it seems like such a weird design decision to me. Have like health pickups everywhere, but every time you pick them up, the, the number starts ticking down. So you feel pressure to do something. But if you do something, the person shoots you and they strip your armor away and then the next guy kills you. So you almost have to ignore them. I don't know. It feels like the play style it wants you to adopt is completely at odds with its presentation. And there's probably an argument to be made that it's more effective as a kind of role playing experience because you, you want to, you, you want to think you're powerful, but you're actually not. But. I mean, there's literally a moment in the game when the electric guitars kick in and BJ says something like, come on, Nazis, show me what you've got. And then I did that section like 11 times <laughs> before I found the correct sequence of pillars to hide behind where I didn't get one-shotted by dudes. Well, I don't know. Damn. Yeah. Yeah. And yeah, it's one of the most technically accomplished games I've ever seen. <laughs> like, Interesting. Yeah, I've got to play this now. Yeah, so, and people should interesting. People <laughs> should play. So people should definitely play it. If only from a people are going to be talking about this kind of way. Hmm. And the craft is tremendous, but there's this, I have this sense that like we're getting to a point with games creatively where craft isn't simply enough. You know, hmm. like and that extends to things like writing. Like really well observed character writing isn't necessarily enough without a strong moral center and doesn't have to be moralizing center, but like a central idea to kind of orbit around. Hmm. And I'm really not sure what this game's central idea is. And yeah, in order to be more, I don't know. Um, so yeah, definitely play it. The only thing I would say to caveat that is that I had no problem with the first game in terms of content. And I'm lucky to be a person that isn't likely to be 
specifically upset by certain depictions. However, I find this uncomfortable. And partly that's due to some of the very impressive kind of horror cutscene design that I've mentioned, but some of it is just due to content. And I said this on Twitter and I said it in a Crank Crowbar Discord, but I would say it again. Um, honest to God, if you are a person who is likely to be upset by relatively realistic depictions of domestic abuse, animal, animal cruelty, uh, parent on child bullying, um, weight shaming for some reason, then I wouldn't blame you for just not playing this game because the benefits of doing so do not necessarily outweigh being genuinely confronted by something upsetting. Can you skip no. the upsetting stuff? Oh, maybe you can. I don't think so, no. Because some of them are like half-controlled cutscenes. Hmm. I don't have any sort of specific uh, triggers, but I just don't like torture and I don't like sexual assault um, and stuff like that. And I will skip it if I can. Yeah. Um, it's no, I don't think so. Cause a lot of it's in like, you have semi control over where you're looking type kind mm. of, um, so it's not as, the thing that reminds me that this the most is Hotline Miami 2. I hate to bring that up cause I fucking hated that game and I don't hate this game, <laughs> but like it's the same as similar. It feels like a similar case of like love first game, second game, just put some steps the weird way, like Hotline Miami 2 with its toggleable sexual assault scene <laughs> and wonky level design. But, yeah, I don't know. Mm, I don't know. I don't know. Mm. It's getting like nine out of tens everywhere, and I really don't know. But yeah, it'll be. Maybe I'll return to it next week when I've finished it and hopefully gotten some thoughts down. I'm also writing some things for various places about it, so hopefully I'll just try and figure this out. But also, I think it'll be really interesting to see more perspectives come out after this initial wave. I think we should hand over to talking about the least troubling shooter. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, you're saying that, you know, maybe it's good that, um, you know, games have a moral core, or at least a thing to say. And I don't know what Destiny 2 has to say other than <laughs> space is fucking cool. So uh, maybe I'll qualify that. I'll think, I see, it, blah, blah, blah. I think if games are going to touch on real history and real world subjects mm. and real world subjects like child abuse, for example. Yes. Then you probably need to say something about something. Destiny sub touches on subjects like what if someone stole our big egg <laughs> and where's my magic gun? Exactly. And the, the, is Nathan Fillion my friend? <laughs> <laughs> He's everyone's friend, Nathan Fillion in Destiny. So you've been, you've been work, you've been playing Destiny for PC, Tom? Uh, yeah, Destiny 2 came out this week on PC and, um, it's splendid and I love it and the internet hates it. <laughs> or at least certain corners of the internet hate it. I think that there's still a strong silent majority of people who just enjoy it and play it casually every week and really enjoy it. It's a, it's a shooter from Bungie. It's the first Bungie shooter on PC for a long, long time. Yeah. Like Halo 2. Yeah. yeah. Jesus. <laughs> a long, long time. Uh, and they've teamed up with Vicarious Visions to port the game to PC. And for what I played so far, um, I've hit the level cap. I've done the story. I'm at night, nightfall level. Um, that's like a, you know, it's, it's just about 6 p.m. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> the witching hour. Uh, and yeah, the, the port's beautiful. Uh, it's an absolutely stunning way to play through a series of like concept art design set pieces that Bungie have created for each planet. So, um, I should probably summarize what Destiny is briefly, even though we've talked about it quite a lot in the podcast here and there. Um, so, uh, humanity has gone, undergone an apocalypse and almost all of humanity has been wiped out. But there is one city saved by a giant ball from space <laughs> called the Traveller, a big white ball. And, um, it sends out its little drones called ghosts 
and those ghosts select heroes from you know the the dead remains of humanity and they bring them back to life and they use the traveler's light and that's light to the capital l mm. which is the the good force in the universe that the traveler provides to um support these guardians and you are one of these guardians and you're tasked with defending earth uh, and defending the traveler essentially and your ghost endlessly resurrects you and that's why in game that's why you keep on coming back over and over and over again and you go out into the universe and you travel across uh four different planets um maybe five hang on earth titan nessus nessus and io yes that's four and you kill the enemies of humanity which are four different alien factions like a zombie one called the hive there's uh a computer kind of uh singularity one called the vex and what's the other? The scavengers. Oh, oh yeah, the scavengers, which are the, the, the fallen, and also the cabal, which are just space rhinos who are a bit like, you know, Roman Legion, basically in space coming to destroy you. And it's the cabal that are the big threat. They're Vogons, basically. Yeah, they're Vogons, actually. <laughs> they, um, their whole thing is that they, uh, if they encounter a problem in the universe, they just delete the planets in that <laughs> system and just keep on going. So yeah, Vogons. The cabal are the big bad guys in Destiny 2. They've uh, arrived, they've put a, a big muzzle on the Traveller, and they're siphoning its light. It's like a clamp. They, they literally clamped. Like a, they've clamped the Traveller. <laughs> You're not allowed to park there. They've got a big ticket. <laughs> F you. Uh, but there's no complaint line. Uh, instead, you have to hunt down the leader of uh, the cabal and, and destroy him. Um, but part of that is you have to you know, go around the solar system, getting the band back together and getting the guardians back together, restoring your light, etc., and then taking the fight back to the enemy. Um, as a, again, it's, it's fundamentally a shooter. It's about, it's an action RPG shooter is pretty much what I would describe it as. It's got, uh, the single player campaign is probably about five or six hours. It's a Hellgate London like. <laughs> I heard someone reference that like as a, I can't remember who it was, so I apologize. I can't That's, give them credit, but like, they're saying in an alternate universe, we're all playing Hellgate Tokyo now and Destiny is this weird offshoot. <laughs> <laughs> That's like, um, you know how like when you're writing a review and you're like, should I reference other games in case people don't know? Them? Like that's the worst thing <laughs> yeah. you could possibly reference in a review. Far fewer like, people know oh, that. This incredibly niche thing that didn't that basically collapsed. Um, uh, Destiny Two essentially is it's a beautiful, beautiful shooter from Bungie, and it's designed as a persistent game that you go back to pretty much every week to do a little bit of stuff. And at its heart, it's um, a deeply social game about teaming up with friends, having like a just a standby list of friends you can drop into to do some PvP. Uh, in the crucible or to do you know a strike which is like a dungeon together which is three-person dungeon or um with a bit more organization to go into their splendid raids which are six people against this uh, like a meticulous puzzle uh environment full of shooting um it's an extraordinary shooter it feels amazing to kill Mm. stuff in the game it's for me uh as someone who loves diablo and kind of appreciates everything it does with the feedback loops it creates i think destiny is um just the pinnacle of that type of design uh, in terms of taking just bringing Bungie's expertise in creating guns that feel amazing and encounter design with uh, enemies that have varying kind of AI states where, you know, you've got little guys. It's a bit like the old Halo games, right? Where you've got little guys who can back off and run away. Uh, people with shields who will block you, you know, people, you know, they're the bosses that will kind of loom over everyone else. Um, you've got recharging abilities, which are like, uh, special magic punches and magic grenades and beautiful guns that you can switch between to delete people's shields if they're the right energy. And the, the rhythm of combat is just a beautiful 
endlessly satisfying thing. Like mm. they've done a, an amazing job with just creating this, um, what the Bungie always talk about the 30 second chunk of the game just being endlessly satisfying a thousand hours after you first encountered it. And for that reason alone, if you like that sort of thing, you've got to play destiny too, man. <laughs> it's, it's so good and it looks beautiful and it, it feels even better running at like a hundred frames per second on a PC because the port is beautiful as well. And if, or if you like cool sci-fi shit and seeing amazing vistas and flying through space, going, going to Titan and seeing the arcology, which is yeah. this golden age, uh, human construct where mm. uh, I don't want to spoil it. I mean, it's, that reveal it, is great. It's so, so good. Um, and big old sea snake and yeah, big old sea snake, which big stuff in space, which is something that Bungie yeah, been always very good at. Absolutely. Um, it's, and it, I think it's, there's nothing quite like it on PC at all. Like people mm. say Warframe and stuff. Like people say, Oh, uh, and it's kind of structurally kind of similar to Guild Wars and a lot of old stuff, but there's nothing actually like it to, to play. No. It's, it's, it's so seamless, um, in the way that it leads you into its various delicious kind of components. So there's so many different things you can do in the game. You can just drop into Crucible and play four versus four PvP for one minute. And then you can take your fire team to another activity and do a couple of dungeons, uh, with the strikes. You can go and do some adventures. Well, if you do that particular planet. transition, you have to have one friend you don't like as much as the others. <laughs> that, that is true. Um, <laughs> but like, uh, just as a kind of like hanging out place, a place to hang out, a place to get together. I think there, there are a few games, few modern games that do such an amazing job as Destiny of creating a sense of, uh, community and a sense of, you know, uh, lots of people being in this world and having fun together. And a lot of that is because they, um, they don't let strangers talk to one another unless you <laughs> opt in to whispers and stuff. And I've seen like some reviewers uh, and people criticizing it for this, but I think this is the way forward <laughs> for social design to literally keep people strangers until they want to not be strangers yeah. anymore with specific people. And you, it's very important. You have like four, four animated emotes at any different time you can do and you mm. can swap one of them in and out, but that's it. And that's perfect. Yeah. That's <laughs> like it. Wave, bow, dance and a different thing you choose mm. and that's fine and within that you know that just is great <laughs> just take all the politics out of people's conversations take just remove the ability of the you know the the toxic minority to veto the entire game basically which is what you see happening in a lot of you know modern chat rooms anything really any forums uh, is that the 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 most um antagonizing minority runs it basically because they get, they can be as, it's very easy to be antagonizing and it's, you know, very slow and difficult to be, you know, sensible and calm, etc. Um, so what you see in Destiny is that by just simply fucking shutting the fuck, everyone shuts the fuck up and then you just get to enjoy the game and that's brilliant. And if you happen to interact with people who are really helpful, um, then you can get in touch with them if you choose to. You can opt into like a whisper system, uh, which, uh, because the PC version has text, text chat, um, or you can just chat to people if you invite them into your fire team. Uh, so it's, it's like, um, it's a, a wonderful, it's like an MMO without the noise. Uh, and it's a great way to make friends I found mm. on the PlayStation version, uh, up to this point. And so far the, the PC version has been similar and the community uh, inspire as long as it's, you know, when it's not moaning about destiny, even while it's playing it for thousands of hours, <laughs> uh, it is actually very helpful. You know, it's been one of the nicest mm. communities I've, I've been involved with online. I yeah. think, I think it's a, a new model for, an online persistent game that actually creates good relationships between people and good social experiences. Mm. Kind of curious about it. Cause I, 
I bought Destiny on PlayStation 4, kind of planning to get into it. Um, and I played up until the first town, uh, got to like a first place where you see other players. Um, and then I did like one mission after that uh, into a forest and I got a shotgun. Um, and it wasn't grabbing me at that point. Um, but I'm, there's no gamepad shooter that I like. I've never really got on with gamepad, um, with a shooter with a gamepad. And I use gamepad whenever I can. So I use it for like, you know, I use it for Far Cry Primal and for, um, uh, both the Dishonored games. Um, and never any problem with that, but neither of those is really a shooter. And I did, I started playing the modern Doom with a gamepad and I, really thought i didn't like the game i didn't feel like the gamepad was holding me back i just thought i don't like this game mm-hmm. and then i tried it with the mouse and keyboard and i'm like i do like this game <laughs> i like this game when i'm good at it <laughs> and uh so maybe the same thing with destiny maybe that it wasn't grabbing me because i didn't have a level of mastery you know i didn't feel like i was being clumsy or sort of failing to to do what i wanted to do but with something like doom it was just like as soon as i'm completely in charge of this thing as soon as i can like mm. really drive it then um it suddenly clicked for me i found personally that um destiny is the only pad shooter i've ever been able to play and i think part of the reason you might have bounced off it is because destiny one gives you fucking terrible weapons to start with like you get a rubbish assault rifle. sorry this is destiny two that I paid oh, really? oh, okay. yeah you said yeah oh, it does, does give you good weapons in fairness yeah i guess and also um the tuning on pc for the console uh, the tuning on pc for a pad is the same as the console. They've transferred it across directly. Right. So you're getting the same feel as you're going to get from a console with them, um, with a pad. Um, yeah, I'd, I'd, I'd say it's, it's one of the only pad shoots I've enjoyed. I wouldn't play with a pad on PC though, mm. especially in competitive contexts. No. What, which one are you going to stick with, Tom? I say this is someone with a vested interest in you sticking with PS4. <laughs> I mean, I, I'll certainly play on PS4. I think the, the, the interesting, like, um, to get on some of the criticisms of Destiny actually, uh, is that when you reach a certain point, you basically stall. And I've hit the point where I've stored on the PS4, which is bad in the sense that I have no need to go back to it. But it's good in the sense that if I want to raid with people, then I can jump in because everyone's going to be at the same kind of plateau. Yeah. Uh, and the the game does run out of steam uh, past a certain point. I think past a point that it's well worth your money and time if you like shooters and you like sci-fi shooters. I think that if you buy Destiny 2, you're going to get just a really thrilling 20 to 30 hours before it starts to run out of steam. Um, and also there's more DLC and stuff during December yeah. and to come further on and actually uh Destiny 2 reset uh Destiny as a as a franchise basically so the first game had like loads and loads of expansions uh, had loads of planets and loads of kind of locations to go to and they put amazingly they put it all in the bin <laughs> <laughs> all of that which is still a kind of a such a stunning decision in some ways that they've they had all those environments that looked beautiful yeah. and played really well and they've they've just gone uh, and I think that's what's upset a lot of, of uh, a lot of Destiny One players hmm. who felt like that was their that was their solar system. And now it's been replaced by this one <laughs> with less stuff in it. Mm-hmm. And so I, I can see where Destiny One players are coming from when they feel frustrated by it. But um, as someone reviewing it for PC on uh, Destiny Two on PC, where Destiny One wasn't even out on PC, like you've got to recommend it as a, a quality shooter of this type of a, an action RPG of this sort with great social qualities. Mm. Yeah. Destiny 2's, it's a lot more, I think, I can kind of see both sides on this because I was a obsessive Destiny 1 player and, um, I have, you know, taken, like, for various reasons, like, it's been like three weeks since I've seriously played Destiny 2. And when it came out, I was like, this is the only game I'm going to play for the rest of the year because mm. it is great. 
but I lost uh, momentum with it in a way that is unprecedented relative to how I behaved with Destiny 1 until the very end of Destiny 1's life. Mm. It was only the final expansion for Destiny 1 where I really, like, did it and then was done. Yeah. And that was also because I knew it was the last expansion. So it's like, I have, you know, no new thing I'm building towards. And so I sort of, I can sympathize with some of the, not disappointment, but some of the sort of feeling of aimlessness but in a sense, that's a trained behavior in a group of people that will only get smaller with time hmm. because that's a trained behavior from people. Because Destiny 1's endgame, particularly at relatively this point in its life when it had only been out for a, couple, for a month, was all over Terrible. the shop. God, yeah, it was awful. And if you really committed to figuring it out, there was a kind of masochistic challenge to like min-maxing your way through it. Hmm. It was all sort of mad loot stuff and that kind of thing. Um and but what that did is it created a community of people who kind of trained themselves on that and every time it would expand and update itself people would learn the new way of getting ahead of the curve and destiny 2 is actually meticulously fair which is on balance a strength but it was like all these people who'd been trained to kind of climb the steepest hill they could find hmm. suddenly find themselves on a flat surface and we're like oh <laughs> like my massive calf muscles are for nothing this analogy got away from me <laughs> <laughs> yeah but, um there's like, a there's a, yeah. sorry, uh, sorry, Chris. There's um, there's a genuine philosophy shift with Destiny Two because, um, Destiny Two says that no matter what you do in the game, whether you're just playing for like one or two hours a week, if you want to join a clan, if you want to just like fluff around on planets and kill stuff and do public events, or if you want to do the hardest stuff in the game, you'll all, you you will eventually get all the gear. That's I think one of the, the the clear differentials between Destiny Two and Destiny One, um, and one of the things that has most irritated the most the hardcore of Destiny One, the idea that the raid gear isn't doesn't belong to you if you don't raid, like that type of that type of um that type of mindset. But I I think I think that that mindset is a hangover from the the age of World of Warcraft, the age of those MMOs that would require that would put the best items behind barriers yeah. and barriers and barriers hundreds of hours of content mm. and i love the game that you know let's say you've got a kid and you've only got time to play an hour a week that eventually you'll see all that stuff like I, that player for me has as much right to see all the best loot and gear in the game as someone who has time to devote all that time to raiding you know repeating yeah. Yeah. content i agree i think i think there's a really interesting and complicated trade-off here however where so one way one place this is most clearly felt is exotic items hmm. so exotic items are a concept that's really interesting and kind of unique to destiny i think in terms of loot so destiny like every game that followed world of warcraft has world of warcraft's way of differentiating between loot levels so you have common uncommon rare and so on right like items but it also has this category of exotic weapons which maybe i think wow did have but basically they have a yellow background and they're not sort of generated their unique kind of designed items um that do something unique mm. and you can only ever equip one exotic armor piece and one exotic weapon at a time so you have to make some decisions about what you're going to equip and what you're going to specialize in um and in destiny one these are things you didn't encounter until the late game and they were genuinely special because i think bungie <coughs> were they were learning how to be MMO developers and they experimented a lot mm. and they were willing to put some really wacky stuff in the exotic weapons. Yeah. So you had a exotic sniper rifle called the icebreaker, which was this giant rail gun that regenerated its ammo over time. And you had things like the Galahorn, which was a, which is probably the most famous destiny weapon, which was a missile launcher that fired a tracking missile that split into smaller tracking missiles as it fired and did a huge amount of damage. 
uh, pistol called the Thorn that gave a huge damage over time effect. And I uh, pick out those three in particular because they all broke the game hmm. at different points. Um, Icebreaker broke the game when they w- introduced uh, special weapon, which would be sniper rifles and shotguns, ammo limitations to PvP. Because then people figured out that if you equipped Icebreaker, let it regenerate its ammo, and then switch to a different (laughs) gun, you could restock at least half of any other gun in the game using Icebreaker as a battery. (laughs) Galahorn broke the fact that a lot of damage, a lot of bosses at the time required sudden spike damage to their kind of overshields to down them to a state where they could be more substantially damaged. And no weapon in the game was as good as that as a Galahorn. Uh, Thorn basically broke PvP for a long time because people realized that two headshots from Thorn and the damage over time effect would kill them eventually. So it created this very KG school of PvP. And all of this stuff were problems for Destiny 1. And all of it was part of Destiny's jank, Destiny 1's jank. And it all led to this strange and undesirable situations where, where people, a lot of these guns were only available through like random chance. Thorn was a quest, I think. Yeah. But both Icebreaker and Galahorn were random drops. And, like, I remember really vividly, like, I raided for a long time in Destiny 1, and I got into the point where I was, I was raiding, like, most days of the week. I would get up really early before work. Um, this is before I painted Warhammer, so this was the thing I did at 5 in the morning then, would be to get up and raid with Americans who were on late night their time, and act as what is called in the Destiny community a Sherpa, which is to somebody who goes in and helps you with the raid and takes you through it. And I didn't have a Galahorn and I didn't have one for ages. And it was only through having lots of other good gear that I could get onto raid groups because mm. I didn't have this amazing rocket launcher. And I remember really vividly the day, the morning I did, um, I'm going to just use some words for destiny people out there. I ran sword for Crota for like three hours for a team that just couldn't do it. And it was one of those nightmare things where I have to go to work and I've been up since five and it's now eight in the morning and we've been on this bus and we finally did it. And the people were so happy because the boss was so hard and they'd gotten the stuff, but I got a Galahorn from it and wow. it, it was my Galahorn. Yeah. And I made this noise that I think woke Pippa. <laughs> um, like this kind of like, <laughs> and it also felt like kind of karmic justice because I'd stuck with a hard boss encounter mm for a long time and it was really like a special moment even though it was built out of busted game mechanics yeah. <laughs> like it was built out of having a gun that's too good that's randomly distributed and boss fights that are too hard and and no matchmaking system and all this stuff right destiny 2 has solved those problems and i say solved as if it has quotes around it because i it, it's an interesting thing yeah. so the exotics in destiny 2 are much less different they do something interesting, mm. but none of them are like, fucking hell, this does that. <laughs> like, they, none of them are essential. And, uh, well, with the exception of one particular exotic that carries over from Destiny 1 in PvP due to other things. But nonetheless, right, like, the vast majority of them, there's no, there is no icebreaker equivalent in Destiny 1, in Destiny 2. There's no Galahorn equivalent in Destiny 2 in terms of like, if you don't have this, you can't raid with us. Mm. And that's a good thing. That, that is unequivocally a good thing when it comes to new players getting into the game and being able to find the content and feel that they've had the full experience. Absolutely. But I feel like in making that fair, they've also, they've patched up the deep troughs of Destiny 1, but also lowered some of the peaks as yeah, well. I completely agree. The, um, the ar- exotic armor, uh, is, is, I don't want to say terrible because it's, it's fine, but it exists only to improve your, power level 
Yeah. Uh, the, the actual tenants of uh, almost every armor drop I've had is either, uh, it either does stuff like, oh, enemies that are low on health are now outlined in red. I was like, that's not exotic. Like the most powerful things in the game. That's all it does. It just, I know what's low on health. I can see I'm playing the game with a shooter. It has uh, health bars. It has health bars. <laughs> I, I think it's almost about to die. Uh, and, uh, so I, I love warlocks and these are just like space wizards who wield space magic. And there's always the kind of like pseudoscientific background to destiny I, I love destiny's world and it's yeah, and the way it's built so and the lore is amazing um but that's like a podcast unto itself really uh the like i've got like four or five four warlock helmets that all do exactly the same thing fundamentally yeah they're all slightly recharged grenade punch and super ability by an unspecified amount and none of the stats in destiny are explained in terms oh, of God. like here here is you know how much time it takes to regenerate a grenade etc and here is how it like nothing is said it just says this will improve this and then you play the game and unless you feel it it basically might as well not exist <laughs> <laughs> yeah this is a rule across the board like it's like do you remember destiny one sunbreakers mm. gauntlets for the warlock <laughs> yeah that allowed you to well it was on the subclass that allowed you to resurrect yourself if you died and then they gave you the ability that after you resurrected yourself, you could throw infinite grenades. <laughs> yeah. And no one, no one thought this would be a design issue. <laughs> like grenades are something that's mitigated on a cooldown in Destiny. It's not like a stock of ammo. It's a cooldown ability that is quite important. Like it's mm. a damage spike. It's very carefully calculated in the sandbox, except you've got magic gloves now when you bring yourself back. To, and so you'd have this situation where you'd be in the crucible and you'd think you'd killed an entire team, particularly in the elimination mode, which works like counter-strike where if you die, you're out. And then suddenly this one guy gets back to life and he's got infinite magic grenades that he's firing out of his hands. And in Destiny 2, they've completely reworked that exotic and removed that subclass yeah. to stop that from happening. And that's, like, correct. But it does make me feel like... So, I'll put it this way. I feel like the experience of Destiny 1 for people who stuck with Destiny 1 through its weird shit and just sort of dealt with it mm. is not repeatable. Because you don't get that same experience of like, wow, this is broken, but I'm having an amazing time. However, it's a much fairer experience and it's still fundamentally a phenomenal shooter. Yeah, I agree with all of that for sure. And it's an interesting one to like, I've got to put a score on it tomorrow. Uh, oh, Jesus. And um, it's like an impossible review in some ways because like you can't really, rev- I can't review it as someone who's gone through the Destiny 1 bus. Mm. I've got to, I feel like I've got to review it as someone who's just bought the game. And what, what do I get out of it? And be, and be completely honest about when this game runs out of steam and it does run out of steam and it's third, like there are three phases to it. You go through the story and that's really fun and exciting. It's introducing loads of new stuff. Then you go through a second phase where you're getting up to the, you know, you're leveling up your gear for the high level stuff. And that's still really good because everything, every, uh, every activity you do is relevant and can give you gear that will get you up to that point. Um, but then there's a stretch after that where actually the incentive incentivization systems basically most of the activities in the game don't benefit you if you like go into you know patrols if you go into adventures if you go to a lot of the pv stuff like you're just not gonna it's not gonna drop gear that's high enough to do it so there's a weird there's some weird design at the very top end of that game that actually invalidates a lot of the content they've put into it uh, which i'm sure they'll resolve because bungie god help them do change things they over. reinvented the first game like three yeah, different times absolutely uh, i expect the same thing to happen with destiny 2 according to player complaints basically mm. and i think it's a wonderful thing i think it's a wonderful thing to get in at the ground because uh i have such fond memories of destiny 1 the way it evolved and going into various different raids and getting back together with old friends to 
to do a new piece of content. So uh, as a kind of persistent experience, I found Destiny 1 extremely rewarding and the uh, Destiny 2 is going to follow a similar pattern, I think. Mm. And for that reason, if you like that sort of game, it's worth putting on with the frustrations, putting, yeah. putting up with the frustrations to enjoy that arc over its lifespan. Yeah, I was stressed that like, Destiny 1 is easily in my top 10 games of all time, mm. possibly top 5. Yeah. Like... The highs of that game were incredible. The, the raids are splendid. It just, um, the, like, the, I've not tried the new raid yet. Um, I will as soon as possible, but it's like the raids of Destiny 1 were as maddening and difficult as they were. Just such sensational co-op challenges. Some of the best co-op experiences I've, I've ever had in a game. Yeah. And, and only Destiny has done that. And it's, it's by marrying a lot of, uh, you know, RPG, action RPG progression systems with a, a, an incredibly, talented studio of um shooter designers and the they've done a great job of the port so yeah, i mean yeah i think great. um i think something that's worth considering is that so a really interesting thing about destiny one was it had a sort of underwhelming single player campaign mm. um that then kind of gave way to the end game and it did two things wrong which was a the single player campaign was confusing and underwhelming um it only makes sense in hindsight after you've dug into the lore later yeah. What the fuck happened? Like, you fight a big ball, not the good ball, a bad ball, maybe, and some robots, and then it ends. Oh, yeah. Remember that? I do remember the final boss fight now. <laughs> yeah, you remember you thinking about the time you fought a big blob? Blob? It's just a blob, isn't it? Yeah. It's the evil blob. And it's, it's, and, and then the, um, and the, the presence of the end game after you finish the single player campaign at the beginning of Destiny 1 is treated as almost like a kind of, well done, Guardian. That didn't change anything. Back to work. And understandably, I know from the stats, a lot of people quit at that point. That's the point at which most people traded in Destiny 1 mm. and didn't really go anywhere from there. Um, Destiny 2 is phenomenally more successful at A, providing a meaningful arc within the context of its campaign, you know, leading up to the end game, And then in making the end game itself feel like a reward. And that uh, has, and I don't want to spoil anything, so I'm not going to talk about specifically how it does that, mm. but it changes things at the end of the game in a way that makes you feel like you have now gotten access to the cool part of the game. Yeah, it feels like the game starts. Yeah. Whereas yeah. Destiny 1 felt like it's like, well, back you go. <laughs> and so my my thought is, so I think you're right that like people will run out of steam with Destiny 1. Mm. Destiny 2, sorry. But I, I, I suspect more people who come to the game casually will successfully make the transition from single player kind of campaign players to kind of end game tinkerers than did with Destiny 1. Yeah. And I think maybe it's engineered to kind of hmm. more successfully to help people cross that gap a bit to become Destiny players. Cause like that was the end of the campaign is when you be become a Destiny player or not really. Right. right? Like that's when you start yeah. to think about, you know, your progression, the way you're going to build your character rather than simply like the next mission, the next mission, the next mission. And I think Destiny 2 is far better. It just runs out of steam later, basically, mm. than the first game did for it's the vast also, majority of people. It's a much more generous game, Destiny 2. That's the, the trick that Destiny 1 pulled was that, well, it wasn't a trick. It was just incredibly bad grind, grindy, <laughs> rando drop design. And that you're, you know, you're encouraged to get onto this massive you know, treadmill, uh, of random drops. And that, it was awful. <laughs> it was really bad. The, I only, I only got hard light, which is a 
fucking terrible <laughs> exotic uh, auto rifle for the first 18 months I played that game. And I loved the game and I played it quite a lot. And that was the only drop I got. And that was pure RNG. Like. And with hindsight, I don't know why I stuck with that. <laughs> yeah. I know like, I did, but I don't know why. It's be- I think it's because it was, um, especially the way the, you know, the PlayStation is designed. It's very, very easy to drop in with other people. Yeah. And it's extremely good at just giving you a friends list and letting you just click on someone and um, invite them into a team. And then you see their beautiful ship sort of swerve into view behind you on your loading screen and suddenly you're part of a, a crew that can go off and do fun adventures and as like a, as lob i think a lot of it is weirdly just lobbying systems and amazing ui and amazing mm. just kind of seamless ability to connect with people uh that i think that's one of the most underrated aspects of destiny one and destiny two and that is like for example like look at how hard it is to get into a game in GTA Online or into even Rainbow Six Vegas with lobbies and with, you know, getting people in, etc. Yeah. And how seamless it is in Destiny when you're all in the same universe and you just sort of, like, click on someone and they join you. Yeah, and such a strong sense of character from people's characters as well. Like, yeah. I sort of feel like I know when it's you and Phil or, you know, like, who I'm playing with feels like it has. And that's that's an old WoW thing, actually. Mm. Like, it's still managed, despite its slickness, it's managed to retain that sense of, like, oh, there's Tom's character or yeah. whatever, right? Yeah, uh, and just all the changes you can put on your ships and the kind of... Yeah, yeah, yeah. There's such it's a strong sense really of personality from it. And yeah. Like, it's one of the reasons that I would really struggle to move off PS4 mm. because, like, I've got been at, like, and I was a weird, I was a Destiny One weirdo because back in one of the bad old days of Destiny One grind, the only way to efficiently progress was to have three different characters and <laughs> right. run the weeklies with all of them uh, every week. Remember when you used to have to do learn routes around planets to earn materials to level up guns. <laughs> Son, that was there the day they released the exotic sword quest, and I did it on day one. Right, wow. I collected a lot of relic iron that yeah. day. The, suffice, <laughs> I mean, a lot of Destiny 1 players feel let down by Destiny 2, but you must have forgotten Destiny 1, man. You must have if forgotten I think, that. I think basically all they need to do is add one quest where you need to go to fucking Nessus <laughs> and collect three and a half thousand pieces of flint <laughs> and the destiny one players will be fine so, yeah, <laughs> finally, this is what we wanted um but yes um but yeah no but nonetheless through all that i've got this really strong because i was a one character person from the start i've got such a strong attachment to that character now that yeah. like when i show up in destiny i kind of want people to know it's me mm. like it's that hunter guy again mm. who's gonna run around in a silly cape and yeah it's been, it's been rad actually because um, i've rolled hunter for the first time on pc and uh it's the only class that gets a triple jump Welcome. It's a new Welcome world. To the right way to live. <laughs> it's a new world. Out we can't there. floof, but we can triple jump. Yeah, it's really good. I understand now why you were so good at those jumping puzzles and those raids back in the, <laughs> back in the day. Yeah. Well, because I can jump three times. Yeah. Yeah. As opposed to floofing gently into a wall and then yeah, falling. Which is still the funniest thing in the world. <laughs> yeah, oh, yeah, it's, it's true. But leading, uh, oh man, I just want to talk about Destiny, but I want to let Tom talk about. It. Yeah. So yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, leading warlocks through a raid as a hunter is the best thing in the world. Because you can jump, you have three quite precise controlled jumps in the air and they have to do this kind of like hover powered kind of like, like a bin bag in a breeze trying to carry itself across a ravine. <laughs> it's like that scene in um, American Beauty, but you actually have to get from one space bus to another. Um, oh man, being- nothing. So King's Fall as a raid. It's going to be quite hard to top that, I think, for me. Um, the um, that was uh, the Oryx one, right? Yeah, uh, yeah. They, uh, so we, um, Chris and I, and a bunch of pod friends um, went into the raid cold, and this is how we've done a couple of them, I think. Yeah, I've done all of them cold at the first time. Yeah, and going into a raid cold 
is like a nine to 12 hour experience. (laughs) It's an entire human day. Yes. Of not knowing what you don't know. Uh, and it, they're all like puzzle scenarios full of, um, you know, obviously shooting. You have to shoot your way through the puzzles, but, um, it's an amazing way to do it because between you, (laughs) between the six of you who are attempting this raid, you will invent amazing raids that don't exist. As you try to, as you try to solve the raid, like as you, you, you're looking at all the patterns and, and reading into all the language, you will invent the most complicated and nonsensical raid. I think I need to be shooting when I stand on the pad <laughs> or else the man won't spawn. Shouts your friend Matt. And you're like, no, Matt, I think you're wrong. I think you just need to stand on the pad and that's fine. And so on. And there was six a, hours. There was one point where in the, um, in, in one of the raids where, it was like called Zavathin's weave or something. And like, we got into like a deep discussion about, Oh my oh, God, what does weave mean? Weave. As a six person team, we need to like form a weave as we move orbs from one point to the other while shooting bad guys. Because <laughs> in any way, aren't the weapons of the hive fundamentally ontological weapons? <laughs> yeah. The opposite of the traveler, a, a creature of pure truth. This is, this is what you, this is what happens. But yeah. It's amazing. It's like some of the most fun I've had, like, uh, just figuring out those puzzles and just getting into that. Sh- into yeah. That shit. Really looking forward to Destiny 2 raid, even yeah. though it's, a big yellow face saying, show me what you got. <laughs> show and me I see what you got. <laughs> I see what you did there, Bungie. Um, that's Destiny 2. We'll yeah. probably return to it. Yeah, I, think so. I don't know if we'll put it on PC, but yes. It's great. Tom, Francis, hmm. Opus, Magnum. <laughs> that's what I'm Tell playing. game about. Yeah, I talked about this uh, last week when I hadn't played it. Uh, it had just come out and I speculated that it might be a happy midpoint between Zaktronic's previous games, Space Chem and Infinity Factory, which are the two I've played. Actually, I played a bit of Shenzhen IO as well. Um, but Zaktronic's make games that uh, are engineering challenges or programming challenges, which are kind of the same thing. <laughs> and Zaktronic's games prove that they're the same thing. Uh, they give you some inputs and an out, a desired output, and then you build the process that the inputs must go through to produce the desired output. And how efficiently you do that is something with enormous scope for variance. Um, and so in space chem, you're rotating mo- like atoms and molecules around um, to produce the right kind of chemical. In Infinity Factory, you're in like a 3D Minecraft-style interface, uh, building a sort of production line of conveyor belts and um, things. And I like the physicality of that. I got a lot better with Infinity Factory than I did with Space Chem. Space Chem was too abstract for me. Um, but I did kind of stop with Infinity Factory because it got overwhelming. It was when the challenge was hard, I would look at it and just think, ah, I don't know. <laughs> like in 3D, it's hard to visualize things. It's hard to plan or it's harder than 2D. And uh, I thought maybe the new one, Opus Magnum, it's 2D and you're building a machine with physical arms. It is about alchemy. So it's not clear why you're building a metal machine with actual like pistons and hydraulics and stuff because you have, they're called atoms, the things you're manipulating. Um, but nevertheless, you are building a tiny machine and I don't care what it's supposed to be or what the metaphor is because it looks like a nice shiny machine. Um, and yeah, that turned out to be completely true. It is by far the uh, Zachtronics game that I've enjoyed the most. Um, it's the one that clicked for me, basically. And I would even say that it is their most accessible game. It's the most, it's, if you've never quite clicked with them before, but you've been somewhat interested in the idea, uh, this is the one to try. Um, because 
it is satisfyingly physical. The thing you make is a beautiful little machine. It's absolutely the sense of pride you get for making a machine in, in, um, Opus Magnum is, um, is fantastic. And because it's 2D, I won't say it's simple. <laughs> There's no claiming that this is a simple game, but it is easy to see your machine. It's easy to see it working. It's easy to see what it's doing. Um, and it is beautifully tutorialized. It's got a really gentle tutorial that leads you into, um, for me, it was just the right rate where it was never difficult to understand what's going on, never difficult to grasp a new concept. Um, but also it wasn't frustratingly slow. It wasn't like, oh, I'm bored, move on. Um, and then that tutorial culminates in a puzzle where literally all you're trying to do is there's, uh, you get given two different atom types and you gotta, uh, put one of them through a process to turn it into salt, uh, just move it onto this salt tile and then it becomes salt. And then you join them together and deliver them. So really just two steps to the process. Salt one of them, join the both, and then it's done. Um, and that puzzle is uh, really easy to make a machine that does that. And in fact, that's still true. I'm about halfway through the game now. And it's still broadly true that it's like the latest puzzle is the first one where it's been a challenge to make a machine that does the job. Uh, every other time it's been... Yeah, I can make a thing that does that, like, for sure. Like, that's never going to be, I'm never worried I won't be able to solve this. Um, and usually I can solve it pretty fast. It will be like, uh, maybe 10 minutes to, to figure out how to rotate this and join it to that. But as you're doing it, you already know, like, completing it is just, um, a first draft. And at the end of it, then you'll decide, am I going to redo this or am I going to move on? And for that end of tutorial puzzle where you just got to join those two molecules and uh, two atoms and uh, salt one of them, um, I did move on. Uh, I, I made a machine that did it in 56 cycles. Your machines are rated on uh, how much they cost, like the cost of all the components you used, um, how much space they take up, and how many cycles it takes to produce six products from a cold start. So whatever you're trying to build, you're trying to build six of them. Um, you will build a machine that loops. You almost... It's theoretically possible to make one that only runs for six cycles by just making a really long programming chain, but that would be silly. Uh, you you make one that makes one product and it repeats. Um, so the question is, how long does it make, take to make your first product? And then how long does it take to make each one after that? Um, and it was like 56 for me. And then uh, Alex Wiltshire posted his and it was like 40 cycles. Um, and one of the things I love about this game is that the machines you make are beautiful. It gives you a way to export them as GIFs. There's just a button on the on the success screen that lets you export your machine, which in itself, there's two smart things about that. One of them, you export a GIF, and obviously GIFs are very shareable. It's, it's the most GIFable game in the world mm. because it, it is 2D. You are making a short loop of a really satisfying thing. It's just the everything about what you're trying to do perfectly suits the GIF format, um, and it does it for you automatically. You don't have to use any software or anything. And people are sharing these on Twitter loads, including me. Uh, it's all I've tweeted about for about a week. <laughs> it's just one long string of GIFs. Um, and a remarkable thing about that is when you see other people's creations, for the most part, uh, I love them. I look at other people's creations and they did something better than me. And I think, wow, that's amazing. That's so clever the way you did that. Or someone will show me like, oh, yours is way better than mine. Here's my shitty one. And I'll think, actually, that's really cool because it swings this thing around in this really fun way. And it's really satisfying when it does this. Yeah. The machines have aesthetic qualities beyond their efficiency. They are sometimes just lovely to watch. Sometimes they're really weird. I made one just accidentally where um, I was just making improvements for a previous design. And as it happens, a long arm swings upwards to be horizontal. and 
the moment it reaches horizontal, a shorter arm in the same position starts from horizontal, then swings up, and it gives the illusion that the arm is bending in a really weird way. And it's also really hard to track which, like, the atom seems to move from the long arm to the short arm. It's almost as if it's jumping. It's not. There's two different atoms, and they're moving in different ways. But they have those weird qualities like that. And so for the most part on Twitter, uh, every time someone sends me their... Um, their machine um it's a wonderful positive one of the most positive like gaming communities i've been part of for ages where people share their creations and i i'm almost always moved to compliment them i'm always like that's great look what you did that's quite awesome um except alex wiltshire <laughs> who posted Hated his podcast villain alex wiltshire <laughs> who posted his better machine than mine on twitter and he posted it on twitter to say oh look i made this and um uh and so i applied to him to compliment it and say oh yeah that's cool i like the way it like swings up at the end um and then uh, discovered that uh, privately uh, he had smack talked me <laughs> in a, uh, I can't remember if it was in a private chat room or, or a DM. Um, but before I had replied, he had actually already said this to me, like, like, ha, I put your machine in the dust. Look, mine's way better. <laughs> and so he's like, fuck you, Alex, I'm going to make a better one than yours. Um, and uh, I did. I spent about eight hours on that <laughs> end of tutorial puzzle. This is the simplest puzzle in the game for which there is any leaderboard at all. Um, and the incredible thing about the game is the scope for, for optimization is just enormous. I think this is probably true for all of Zachronics games, but this is the first one I've been that's been accessible to me that I can not only can I play it, but I am motivated to get good at it. I'm, I'm happy to because spend time. Because of the hated foe, Alex. Watson. Yeah, because of Alex. <laughs> <laughs> um, uh and on my leaderboards uh the um there's alex and then there's um other noteworthy foes are uh kevin simmons of um video games hot dog who worked on kingwood loathing um and west of loathing and who is a genius unfortunately <laughs> his incredible his name on twitter is puzzle theory and uh he earns that name he's incredibly good at puzzles um he's the guy who completes as and hazelden games and not just the normal way but also gets all the secret stars <laughs> um and the anti hazelden uh yeah <laughs> and Jeep Barnett, one of the designers of Portal, who oh, yeah. uh, I'm pretty sure designed a lot of the advanced puzzles in Portal, where you're rated on how many steps you took, on how few portals you used, and all that optimization stuff. Yeah. Um, and every fucking scoreboard in this game, they're just, they have figures that don't make any sense. And so for this one, Jeep had 25 cycles. And like mine was 56 and Alex's was 40. And I was trying to be Alex at 40. And I'm like, 25? What the fuck are you talking about? That's impossible. And then I kept making it. I've made 12 versions of this puzzle now. I was, my time in this game was literally 50-50, progressing through the campaign, just solving every puzzle, just making a machine that does the job, and then going back to the, the it's called stabilized water, the, the end of the tutorial puzzle, and just doing stabilized water again. <laughs> and so I'd spend like half my time just doing stabilized water over and over again until I got down to like 27 and then 26. And then finally I found a way to like, ah, I can get 25. And then Kevin tells me, it can be done in 15. <laughs> What? Mm-hmm. Fucking 15? Fuck off. <laughs> See, this is my experience with Infinifactory, because like, I did that thing of um, getting through Infinifactory, the campaign, solving the problem every time. Yeah. Not necessarily doing it prettily, but mm. I made the thing. I did the thing. And then, um, for me, uh, hated foe, my friend Dan, <laughs> um, uh, who uh, was a former member of the Hot Dukes, um, who is a programmer and therefore knows how to do things that mm. my brain don't don't do good. <laughs> and so 
in a way it was actually helpful for me to go back to so i would go back to those first uh levels and try and improve them for my own benefit but then i would necessarily see how few cycles or, or whatever dan could do them in and realize that that wasn't for me and be so intimidated that the <laughs> golf was so great that i could then safely give up <laughs> and i yeah. feel like there's a tension point between your sense of yourself but also like the point where you go i can beat that and i'm going to try for eight hours and the point where you go i find this comforting because i live down here in the big <laughs> <laughs> yeah for most part i do have that um this one puzzle because i'd already got to 25 i'm like all right mm. i'll see if i can do 15 uh, and by that time i'd understood so much more about how optimization works in this game and just some little simple tricks um to figure it out um and in particular, I, what I'd done was uh, nearly optimized the rate at which it produces these things. So once it gets going, it is producing one product every frame. So there's no faster way to produce products. But you start from cold. So the time it takes the thing to go from the input to the output counts against you. Um, and that was the last sort of... Uh, I think I was down to like... I can't remember what. But um, the final bit of optimization was like not only does it have to produce one thing every single cycle, but you also have to get it from A to B incredibly fast. Um, and I finally did that. Now, on all future puzzles, I don't attempt to match Kevin or Jeep. <laughs> they are always at the apps. You just know what the theoretical minimum is for a puzzle because they have the same score. <laughs> if they have the same score, that's definitely the best you, uh, mm. any human could ever do. Uh, every now and then, one of them has one that's like one less than the other one. Um, and in fact, Kevin said um, uh, it's the last one cycle or the last two cycles that are just a nightmare you know you can make a thing that's sort of basically the most efficient uh machine but there's a theoretical way to shave off just one or just two but you've got to reorganize the whole fucking thing and do it all from scratch i don't really care about that it's worked quite well now because for that one puzzle i did want to know i just theoretically this is simple enough that i should be able to find what the optimal thing is and i did find it by myself there are loads of different optimal solutions actually um and i found one of them and then someone on Twitter improved my solution. I made one with like six rails and every lever is on a different rail. And six rails is just enough that they can reach across each other and get at the same atoms. Yeah. And after I did that, um, someone on Twitter uh, joined those rails. So instead of being six independent rails, they're just two loops and then put six levers on the loops. Um, so they're going around in a circle. I didn't know you could loop rails at all. Um, and it's beautiful. It's like <laughs> my one looks mad and then his one looks just like elegant and lovely. Um, and again, I was like, well done. That looks awesome. <laughs> Wasn't at all put out by that. Uh, on future puzzles, I don't try and get the optimal thing. And the fact that I have friends who do get the optimal thing, like you say, kind of gives me a certain level of comfort. I'm like, well, I don't need to do that. <laughs> They've done that. Um, and also it means when, Alex smack talks me, which he has continued to do <laughs> uh, when he beats me. Um, I know I can beat him because Jeep and Kevin have beaten him. <laughs> like by a lot. They've got like a quarter of his cycles. Yeah, but so I'm like, there's some room between Alex and Kevin and I can exist in that room. I'm sure. <laughs> That's what all, all anyone has to aspire to. <laughs> Better than Alex, but worse than Kevin. <laughs> Love that the two of you have fallen into the exact archetypes that actually form the story around the game of like warring <laughs> yeah, alchemists who hate each other and fundamentally want to be the best. <laughs> It's wonderful. I was I was playing it earlier a little bit, and I put uh, an hour. I've, I'm only like two hours in, so I'm a total like babe in the wilderness at this point of weird spindly rotating death traps. Um, but so far, there are two anxieties. One anxiety is 
um, how do you make one element go into lots of different places mm-hmm. in the most efficient way? Like uh, they, they really restrict the number of kind of like core elements you have to kind of manipulate in order to get yeah. to the final product. And the other one is, um, how the fuck does rotation work in a hex grid <laughs> where things rotate at various intervals and you can stretch them out, uh, you know, the spindles by which they rotate and the, the weird anxiety of like angles across a hex grid when things are like, that seems to be most of the game so far. Yep. You're giving me the Zectronic Sphere. <laughs> I haven't played this one yet because I loved it. I've liked every game he's made apart from Shenzhenaiyo, which is just too smart for me. Hmm. Um, and, um, there's just too many. There's just too many. <laughs> I found like, on principle, this is perfect because I wanted the middle ground between Infinity Factory and Space Camp, basically, mm. which apparently this is. But that slippery slope of like, as soon as you start, like, it feels like you have to make room in your brain for this thing, right? Like that you. It's like a heavy piece of software that you need to have installed for a time. <laughs> the game itself is small, but like in your actual human mind brain, you need to have like a certain amount of power given over to so the Zactronics game of the moment mm-hmm. in order to then, re- you know, because there's that old cliche of like, oh, I slept on it and then I woke up and the solution was in my mind or I had a shower and then it occurred to me. I've, I found with this though that, um, one that, cause I played a few of the Saturnics games, I really enjoy them. But th- for this one, you can make things that are inefficient but beautiful, which is not yeah. true of other games. It's so, true of Infinity Factory. Oh, okay. Um, but for, so earlier, like, I made a really inefficient solution, but it was like a perfect arrowhead shape. <laughs> and, um, it, the, the game even supplies you with a cosmetic tile to put in. They've just added that today. Oh, I was, really? I was so excited about it because I, yeah. I, you make a machine that beautiful, and it uses like this really compact like diamond of space or a certain like hexagonal shape of space, except for one tile, which you just don't need. There yeah. just doesn't need to be anything there. And uh, in the past, I would put a, a single tile rail there, which is a nonsense piece. Like a rail is something by definition transports you from one tile to another. So a one tile rail doesn't do anything. It just costs you five and takes away one of your area. <laughs> but just to fill in the gap, just so it was a nice shape. And now they've added what's called the glyph of equilibrium, which just does nothing. It costs nothing. Costs, costs nothing. nothing. <laughs> it just makes it, makes that beautiful arrowhead complete. And, uh, I, I've created a deeply inefficient but beautiful thing that like, it's, it's there's something really in, inherently satisfying about it and it doesn't take long to actually solve the puzzles in and of themselves i think for the most part yeah like, i'm starting i'm starting to get into the more complicated stuff but even then you could hash a solution together fairly quickly within an hour probably they love to once you get to grips with the basics um they love to tease you with um puzzles where instead of like taking three separate ingredients and combining them into a thing that's three uh, orbs uh, they'll give you something that's already three orbs joined together and mm. then ask you to get the individual ingredients out of that by splitting <laughs> it. Or uh, there's one where there's a thing and it's just built wrong and you've got to take it all apart and then modify it and then put it back together almost the way it was, but just one difference. <laughs> <laughs> and it's um, it's kind of, I, I wouldn't, I can't think of another game that's maybe used this phrase, but I describe it as deliciously awkward. <laughs> it's like, <laughs> oh, that's so fiddly. And yet I know I can do it because my tools are so powerful. Like I know I can find a cool way to do that. So you know Tetris Vision? If you play Tetris too much, you kind of start to see oh, yeah. Tetris yeah, yeah. blocks everywhere and want yeah. to like move things and fit them together. Um, and you know how uh, Opus Magnum is about these orbs, these little circles? Um, and you know how a while ago Twitter changed profile pics to be circles? 
Have you been rearranging your friends? Now, <laughs> every time I look at TweetDeck, I kind of I see these rows of circles. I'm like, oh, you could just put those on a rail, and then they would. <laughs> <laughs> Shout out to Mark Brown for creating deliberately inefficient but beautiful. Oh yeah, he's really cool. Yeah. The because um, this is the thing, right? Like, this is what I was going to say about electronics games that, like, old school like point and click adventures would sit in your brain and then you'd be in the shower and you'd come up with a solution to a puzzle. Mm. And I think that is like the lowest unit of brain space a game can take up while still taking up some brain space outside of the game, right? Like Tetris Vision being a slightly more substantial in terms of memory-occupied version of the same phenomena. The problem I found with these games is that they occupy quite a lot of your brain for the time that you live in an electronics game. And Tom, you're very deep in at the moment, so you can't tell. <laughs> but I suspect that, like, at least, like, a terabyte of your brain <laughs> is currently taken up with how to solve these problems more efficiently, which is an amazing thing to achieve. I started writing a guide today. Yeah. <laughs> like, See? I've got so See? many little tips about how this works now. <laughs> exactly. Um, because, you know, like, there's some part of your brain that's no longer occupied with anything else that's just doing this. <laughs> And that's the best thing about these games, but it's also like the reason that I don't, I'm not ready to commit to another one right yet. I will say this one, uh, has been a very happy preoccupation of mine. Um, it doesn't feel, it's something I'm, uh, excited to play because I enjoy it, but I don't feel addicted to it. Um, even though I played it a lot. Uh, and I feel like I can say that safely because I've had a direct recent point of comparison with addiction, which was the paperclips game where, I just felt I was just compelled to play it and I wasn't having fun really. <laughs> and I just, and at yeah. the end of it, I really felt like I wasted my time. Um, even though it's, it is probably, uh, I could easily believe that's the best clicker slash idle game there is. And it's full of invention and, and storytelling and fun things. But, uh, that genre of game is not for me. And, uh, I was still, I was compelled to play it and I regretted my time with it. And I, this does not have that. Like I will solve a puzzle with it and then I'm just done for the, for that day. Um, I don't feel like moving on to a new one and, I will come back the next day because I enjoy it and I want to play a new thing. I'll, I'll, um, it's beautiful. I think the art direction for it is like really, um, understated, but perfect. I would mm. say like it, it's, it looks shiny and mechanical in a really satisfying way, but it's also a very muted color palette that isn't, you know, to look at for a long time. It, I think it's really beautifully uh, designed visually as well. Yeah. I should play it. It's good. I like it. It's in early access at the moment. It's a perfect really? game. Yep. It's really so done. fucking done. <laughs> like it's, I mean, he will add to it and he'll make it better, but it's, I mean, I remember Infinity Factory being like this as well. Yes. Right. Yeah, it's actually, no, perfect. Perfect. <laughs> it's, yeah, yeah, very much like this. 100% well, well done. I really want to play it on iPad. Yeah, actually, I don't Ooh. usually get is that, it, urge, is that a thing with this one I have. Was that happening? Have oh, they I've ever no done idea. mobile stuff? They should. <laughs> they gave it perfect for did space game ever come to not as far as i know i i'm willing to bet infinity factory didn't because i don't think it's a a perfect touch interface yeah this one does feel like absolutely i rarely think this but uh, this is the first time i've looked at my phone and thought hmm you don't have (laughs) (laughs) on you you're a poorer device (laughs) (laughs) on a phone it might be a bit fiddly but an ipad ipad would be awesome beautiful absolutely beautiful damn hmm should we do questions yeah, it's time that we did some questions. We did some questions. We've 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 spoken about it, but it's time we finally did it. Contemplated it, mulled it over. Yeah, deleted some of the not so good ones. <laughs> Cold. <laughs> All questions are good questions. However, we'd say as ever, little PSA at the start of the question section. If you really want to get your question 
read out in the Crate and Crowbar, oh boy, is three sentences or less an amazing mm. quick fire way to make that happen. It's a good recipe. However, we do have some amazing anecdotes this week, so that balances it out. Essentially, if your story also involves something taking off, <laughs> I'm going to be into it. Saying that now, and I'm probably going to regret saying that. Something that doesn't normally take off. If it's just like a plane took off, then... Yeah, that's worth clarifying. Yeah. <laughs> I like a surprising thing that can fly. <laughs> anyway, we should move on to our first question, which comes from Paul, who writes, Good morning, X-Crate and X-Crowbar, podcasters unknown. Listening to Tom Francis on a recent episode inspired me to finally play XCOM 2. I played the 2012 XCOM Enemy Unknown and really enjoyed it, and XCOM 2 has been sitting in my Steam library since the last sale. Inspired by Tom, I decided to not save Scum XCOM 2 like I did Enemy Unknown, but to see how my playthrough developed and make that my story. As such, I was expecting my XCOM 2 adventure to meet a premature end, but I did not expect it to end as quickly as four and a half hours. My game completely went down the U-bend in one 83-minute session. I had my whole squad wiped out three missions in a row before quitting forever in frustration. I didn't have any resources. I didn't seem to be getting any more. I didn't understand the world map screen. I was heavily outnumbered every mission by enemies with better armor and weapons. I was fighting sectoids that could mind control my soldiers, instantly writing off 25% of my squad. Sectoids that can reanimate enemies I've already killed. I was fighting enemies that can reanimate my soldiers unconscious in a single hit. I was fighting big robots, snake men, and shape-changing beasts. And what was I fighting them with? Four guys, a couple with a single promotion if I was lucky, armed with basic weapons, no equipment, and tiny health bars. I was playing on easy, and I was four hours and a handful of missions in. What the hell am I doing wrong? Did Firaxis design XCOM 2 with the expectation that players would save scum and pitch the difficulty level accordingly? Also, can you think of a single game mechanic less fun than time pressure? Yours frustratedly, Paul. I have three things to say about that. Um, one is... uh. I don't know exactly what uh, XCOM sort of uh, thing I said that inspired him to take this, but I'm pretty sure every time I've mentioned XCOM recently, I've heavily mentioned that I do reload save games if anything happens that due to a rule I didn't understand. If there's anything where like, oh, I didn't know if I moved here, I wouldn't be able to do that. Or, oh, I didn't know if I did this, that that guy could kill me in one hit. Or, well, not quite that, but uh, anything where it's like, oh, that wasn't clear. Uh, I'll just reload a save game. Uh, secondly, the uh, XCOM is, XCOM 2 is hardest at the start and easiest at the end. If ever, if you get through the start at all, things just get easier and easier. So mm. it's a really weird difficulty curve that way. Um, I failed the tutorial mission like three times, just completely wiped game over. Not even like you actually can't, if your squad gets wiped, it is game over in the tutorial. Uh, you're not allowed to continue or bring in new people. Um, and you can turn the tutorial off. You can start a game without the tutorial and the game gets easier because the tutorial mission's balls hard. It's just, there's a sectoid who mind controls one of your guys as he says, right away, that's a quarter of your squad. Not just a quarter of your squad gone, it's like half your force is gone because that person's working against you now. And you don't have good enough people to actually take out the sectoid. Later in the game, that's just a thing that happens all the time. You just kill the sectoid. But early on, you don't have the firepower to do that. So it's just like, fuck, we just, <laughs> it's ruined now. Can I back up a second? What is as hard as balls uh i mean i can list things but, <laughs> but it that, won't prove the analogy right <laughs> i'm just saying that's a soft thing and then the other thing is there are loads of hidden fail states in the globe in the balls world thing um the giant ball there's a load of things you can do wrong <laughs> on that strategy map that are not clear it's hard to know that they will screw you and even after they screwed you you don't know that that's what's screwing you 
And when I started my remove shooting campaign to try out like the DLC and a bunch of other things, um, I realized the way I was building my base, every decision I made, as I made it, I thought, oh yeah, I'm doing that. Because one time I tried not doing that and I was utterly fucked because of it. <laughs> like there were just so many things that you just have to do that. You have to do that. You have to do that. You have to do that. Because if you don't do that, you're fucked. And like one of the most basic ones is uh, you need the gorilla training school uh, and you need to get a soldier up to a certain rank really soon because that lets you buy the squad size upgrade which means you're not four dudes you're five dudes then you're six dudes really really quickly if you know what you're doing you can do that really really quickly that more than doubles your effectiveness it's 50 percent bigger squad but having more people is um, disproportionately bigger advantage so yeah it's full of weird hidden failure things like that it is a really harsh game on new players i wish that um the that system was tied to the most senior rank in your squad. So mm. I wish that the moment someone hits like captain or whatever, or, or a certain level, then you, that expanded your squad. So it was about, yeah, I think it is tied out as well. Like I think you can't buy it until have, you do yeah, have you a soldier have of that rank, but you also need to buy the guerrilla tactical school and have a slot for it, which is yeah. a whole, like that's really hard early on. The building stuff is the worst part of the game. And the definitely. plot is telling you not to do that. It's telling you, no, build the shadow chamber or yeah. build this. And... Yeah. And it's saying, Oh, you need to autopsy this. So you need to build a thing that can autopsy the yeah. thing. Yeah. Uh, the, the building side of things is, is the weakest part of the game. I think the ideal XCOM experience would be the one where your first blind experience of the game was the against all odds scrambling for every victory experience. And then subsequently you could min max it. But the reality is that the first one you play is the making mistakes you didn't know were mistakes experience. Hmm. And then the second or third one is the one where you have the scrambling victory against all odds amazing experience I've always and then you get into the min max managed to scramble it from the first playthrough <laughs> maybe i'll just be really lucky uh but I've, I've never had that experience with um being wiped on the first mission and just uh having the sectoids do control you but they're like you've got like guaranteed damage from grenades and stuff that you can use to take out basic enemies from the start but yeah, it's the it world's is... gentlest get good there from Tom Senior. No, yeah, that's what, yeah, I don't want to be like that actually, to be honest. Um, no, I see where you're coming from. Like, but I, I suspect that's partly at least because of carried over, mm, a played knowledge, knowledge, right? <laughs> X-coming, anime, like known, you, yeah. you, and related games. Like, yeah. you know, you are versant. Yeah, maybe that's the problem. Wait for Into the Breach. This solves all those problems. Okay. When is that out? Don't know. <laughs> Damn. Next up, we have from John um, a useful bit of uh, extrapolation on a theme from the last episode when we were talking about uh, things that happen when you're cremated. <laughs> so if that's something that will bother you, then skip ahead 30 seconds. John writes, I'm a junior doctor working in England, and Pip is right. If someone is going for cremation and part of the process is releasing them to a funeral director is to check if they have a pacemaker or certain prosthetics. The high heat used in the cremation process causes the air inside these items to expand and explode. That's why things like hip replacements don't matter because there's no air to expand. I'm not sure about the high alkaline thing Pip mentioned, but I imagine it's the same. Pacemakers and certain prosthetics would need to be removed. So John's question is about playing lots of single-player Dota 2 against easy bots, uh, which he feels is not the right way to play, uh, but is, is fun for him. Uh, and his question is, what games do you play in a way the developer didn't intend? He says, thanks to the pods and videos. John, I feel like we might have answered the playing games in a weird way question before. In fact, I think we might answer it accidentally in almost every podcast. We've seen, <laughs> pretty much. I do sympathize with that in playing Dota bots and easy. I do that as well. Yeah. 
it's, yes. it's fun. And, you know, I, I, I think as long as you're playing it, it's not something they didn't intend. Like, I don't think any developer yeah, sure. sitting back going, fuck, <laughs> stop it. Refund yeah. this. Uh, I can sort of do the reverse and say, uh, there are people who played Heat Extinguisher in a way I didn't intend. Um, I initially prevented you from doing only easy missions. If you did enough easy missions, we stopped giving you easy missions. And if you did enough medium missions after that, we'd stop giving you medium missions. Um, and that was like to make sure it wasn't an effective grinding strategy you didn't enjoy. And then I heard from a bunch of people who were like, I was really enjoying doing easy missions again and again, even as my kit got better, even I was way overpowered. They were easy, but I liked being in, like in control of this. Mm. And so I, I took that feature out and just said, okay, you can do as many as you like. <laughs> as you were right to do, I suspect. Hopefully. Next up, a man from South Africa writes... Good evening to the very interesting voices from my magic rectangle. Is it possible to make a whole podcast using the podcast voice only? If so, how bad will the pod become? A man from South Africa. I'm not sure. I... be bad. Maybe. Tom. I I, I can't get higher than Tom. (laughs) (laughs) Otherwise I would try. It, well, we would end up at a point where it was a podcast that was audible only to dogs, which is desirable. <laughs> That's the way. That's the feature of the Creighton Because the dogs <laughs> don't know the real answer, so it's okay that we're uncertain. They're just <laughs> delighted that we're trying. <laughs> um, yes, I don't, I don't know, because I think that would, that would be prefaced on the fact that we'd have to do a podcast entirely about things we didn't quite know about, but knew enough about to have half a thought and then trail off, thus leaving the onus of research and truth on the audience. It's never stopped us before. No, it hasn't. But what subject? Maybe um, a Pip. football podcast. Oh yeah. <laughs> maybe uh, Pip recounting the plot of Star Wars is as close mm, as you might come. That's to that. true, <laughs> and we have three full episodes of that already on my YouTube account. At least we'll link them in the show notes. That's a good suggestion. Um, you should know this is an exciting reveal. I'm going to make here exclusive to Peyton. Peyton. Blah blah blah. Whatever this is. Your exclusive reveal is as follows. We're going to do that for The Force Awakens. Awesome. Nice. Ahead of uh, The Last Jedi coming out. However, Pip has forgotten that The Force Awakens and Rogue One are different films. <laughs> <laughs> Look forward to Excellent. that. We went to see Thor Ragnarok this week. And before Thor, Gre- Thor Ragnarok, before Thor Ragnarok, they ran the trailer for The Last Jedi. Mm. And <laughs> Pip's response was, why is Luke old? I thought this was a prequel. <laughs> so, if well, she might be trolling me, and she probably is, but that's going to be a spectacular attempt to recollect the events <laughs> of the Force Awakens. <laughs> I look forward to that. Hmm. So yeah, that's just one big podcast voice all the way down mm. or up, as it happens. Next up, Richard writes, "Dear Terry's Chocolate Origins." And may I add, as Chris, fuck you, Richard. (laughs) I said it right that time. You're dead! Exclamation mark and comma. An interesting punctuation choice. (laughs) You find yourself at the pearly gates and St. Peter now says you may start the new game plus of your life. What skills slash items slash knowledge do you carry over? Cheers for the great pods that keeps my commutes enjoyable. Ah. Now I regret being mean to Richard. <laughs> it's too late now. Thanks for trying to trip me up, Richard. 
and I appreciate you as well. Thanks, <laughs> I was mean to everyone who uh, wrote a question that has never been read out. Uh, <laughs> I, uh, true, I Tom. It, yeah. Let's not go back on that. <laughs> I mean, go back to that. Too late. It's too late now. Um, this isn't a great question. This is, this is actually, you say that, Tom. Yeah, um, this is a one. textbook perfect question. Yeah. Love it. So you've died and new game plus flashes up on your screen. Hmm. And you can, maybe in the manner of heat signature, pass on <laughs> one item skill and so on to your future new self. So one thing that's important about this kind of structurally is whether or not, if it really is new game plus of your life, you're starting your life again. Like it's not like reincarnation, new life, new start. So it's the same life. Yeah, same, same life. That's a big... Mm, yeah, that is a, a good point. Mm. Yeah, that, that damn... It's going to be strange because that knowledge will sit alongside you know, knowing a single fucking thing about the world for <laughs> quite a few yeah, years. Yeah, you'll be a baby that knows, like, <laughs> how to use Game Maker. <laughs> um, which doesn't exist <laughs> for quite a long time. Yeah. Hmm. Oh, God. I, I guess said- actually maybe that would be... Um, uh, maybe something like programming would be what I'd want because... I did maths and philosophy at university and I really should have done computer science. <laughs> like that would have helped me a lot more in what I ended up doing. Um, and so maybe having a grounding in that earlier would have got me interested in that path. What you really want to do is give yourself advice, right? You want to go back and say, do, do this instead of doing that, but we can only pass yeah, on skills. Yeah. Maybe, maybe along similar lines, I would say like writing is the thing you're going to do. <laughs> I don't know if that's the thing I pass on because like, I wasn't sure if I was like a science kid or a maths kid or yeah. an art kid. Like I did all of those things, but it's a bit of a shame that we find ourselves being, you know, fitted into those silos. <laughs> yeah, it is. Like it was definitely a, a, a product of the education system that meant mm. that I ended up kind of having to make a decision, right? Like between different fields. I think yeah. that's a, a weakness of the way education is structured, but that's not necessarily a new game plus advice thing to pass on it's no just, you can't change that <laughs> like hmm. I mean, so what about like items tempted to give yourself a piece of future tech isn't it yeah so like yeah so my phone or something <laughs> yeah um, my phone so hang on so he says skills so i guess the skill i would pass on that i have as an adult that i didn't have as a child would be patience hmm honest to god the ability to focus on a single task is something that i think would have made me a much more effective child rather than an easily distracted child that didn't foster any kind of particular kind of area of talent or ability. Mm. There's so many uh, troubles. It's not one thing, but they're just all social skills. <laughs> Took me a long time to develop any at all. And the ones I have now, I would love to have had them earlier. Um, mm. yeah, and just like, yeah, a lot of the social side, of, like if you think about like, you know, rewinding time and doing things again, um, that would be the biggest difference. It'd just be able to deal with people in any way at all. <laughs> Not all the way there yet, but I'm a lot further forwards than I was when I actually had, when it actually sort of mattered more. Mm. Mm. I, I think I'd, uh, I'd give myself a massive overdose of confidence, just more confidence <laughs> than any individual should, should have because the people who have that seem to just get, yeah, give them stuff. Cause that's, <laughs> you know, yeah, I, I think I was one of them. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's good though. But it is, but like, I think what I needed was the patience to dwell on things and like actually get good at stuff. Hmm. In right. New Game Plus, you can, like, you carry your skill over and you can also keep leveling it up often. Like, if you haven't hit the skill cap, 
which I would dare to say none of us have. <laughs> you can uh, just keep pumping points into the, it. The so you start of, at that level and like <laughs> the skill of brazen confidence. And the, tr- <laughs> the thing about brazen confidence is that the the skill points you put into it exponentially increase as it goes on. So you only become. Although I wonder if you stop more putting... balls confident in yourself. <laughs> I wonder it's like, if you... a, like real life is full of fucking bards, like charisma dump stat <laughs> characters mm. that. But I bet you stop putting points succeed. into it because you're so confident. You think, I don't need more of that. I've got plenty of that. Mm. <laughs> yeah. I know exactly what I'm doing. It's time yeah. to level up constitution. Essentially, I would have put that first high skill roll into, like, wisdom, I think. That's what I would have put it into. Yeah, it isn't the fun of making stupid, dumb mistakes, having no wisdom, and then sort of feeling as though you have progression in life. If you start with all the wisdom, where where does your progression come from as you, as you go on? Yeah, like, <laughs> hit the level cap. Already. It's boring then. I don't know. There's no end game. game. I feel like, I feel like the, the Destiny Two plateau. There's right no there. end game content to life. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. I think there's, I think there's an element to which having the wisdom to develop actual meaningful kind of skills and areas of expertise pays off in a way that the short termist experiences that you have with a lack of wisdom tend to not. So I would definitely get funnier stories out of it, don't you? If you yeah, out the yeah, wisdom thing. Hmm. Basically, everybody regrets everything. Um, so we'll move on to items. What item would you carry over? It's not tough because like your phone would actually be no good because it couldn't connect to many like <laughs> cell towers or anything. <laughs> if we're going back in time, like yeah, it's we're not, not sending all your data to the cloud. We're not being anymore. born again today, right? We're we're mm. going back to. Yeah, there's no Wi-Fi networks to connect to. Send like a nice jacket back. (laughs) Just like a favourite item of clothing. Yeah, yeah. You'd have to grow into it a bit, but. (laughs) Hmm. I mean, I couldn't send just like all my Warhammer back to my 15 year old self, could I? Oh, that could work. Yeah, that'd be great. If you could say, okay, if you only send one piece, what would you send? I'd send, uh, my Lord of Change. Yeah. Because that's a, that's a good one. That's a model that did exist in the nineties. Yeah. But it wasn't as rad. Hmm. That would work. It's like, that's such a fucking thing. Like, you send one object. Tiny Chris things get better. Look yeah. at this slightly improved <laughs> that is released. Much in bigger. <laughs> Your journey will be much like this young Chris. The, the old one is made of metal and it's hard to assemble and the wings fall off and it looks weird and its head's too big but this, this one's ripped <laughs> life is better in the this future don't worry it's... but i think like the item you send back uh it's no use thinking about stuff that's like everything you send back is gonna be useless to a baby because babies don't use anything mm. <laughs> and also you don't really need help for the first like eight years it's of your life your parents are just yeah they're gonna take care well if you come from a, a comfortable family which I was lucky enough to do. Um, so anything you send back is going to be like, I think, I feel like adolescence is when you need help, right? That's the, mm. when I look mm. back on my life, that's the time when I was most ill-equipped to deal with the challenges. Yeah, like I need, me. I need help literally the moment I moved from Liverpool to the south of this country. Like that was like age 11. Like that is the exact point where I need someone to step in and go like, you cooler, older version of yourself to come yeah. back and say, here's what you need, mate. All right. Yeah. This is, yeah. AI version of yourself with all your current knowledge that can advise the younger mm. self. That's that's what you want to send back. Or yes. is it? I wonder. What about like you could that's send a photo thing. back, right? If mm. you want to convey information in some way, I suppose you could send a document back of some kind. But like a me- just written message of do this. You don't like a memento scenario. Genuinely, where you're just going <laughs> genuinely I just had an idea, right? Tattoo okay. on my body. <laughs> so no shit. Watch memento. It's really good. <laughs> <laughs> 
I might if I send a, if it was one item, I might send back like one of the issues of PC Gamer when I was acting editor <laughs> because this is like a confidence boost. Yeah, because like I read that magazine when I was a little kid, right? Like if I received that at age eleven, that would be such a huge fucking thing to be like, <gasps> <laughs> like you know, that would be just a nice thing. Like that would actually mean something to that person because it mm. would be similar to something they knew at the time and also it would have lots of games in it that didn't exist yet yeah so <laughs> ruin current games for you <laughs> but i know this happens eventually <laughs> this mm. half-life one is bullshit <laughs> that's a good one like yeah i'd, I'd send like a, a, a feature back with a photo segment in it because a that proves I'm maybe draw an arrow picture. on it they draw an arrow on it so this one's you this one's you this guy with the beard is you by the way yeah you, a one day you get to have a beard yeah that was a that was a genuine concern my dad can't grow a beard uh i get this from my mum <laughs> chris is pointing to his beard yeah. uh and b you you've 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 stayed alive a car hasn't hit you nothing's gone wrong you're going to make it to this point so you, yeah. you try and make the best of it. it's actually a really nice thought though. there's a whole bunch of things in, in our lives that if you went back in time and told yourself you'll do this eventually you'd yeah. be like wow Really I used to have that experience all the time walking to work from when I was working in PC Gamer, like, you, you know, 99% of the time it's, it's the day job and it's what you do and it's, you know, it's something you're proud of, but it's the job. And then occasionally you have to walk to work where it's like, fuck, I remember like, I used to buy this magazine with my pocket money and that's a really cool thing to have done. I remember you were talking about like, it, sort of figuring out whether you're the English guy or the maths guy or whatever. And I remember uh, specifically cycling to work one day and a two PC gamer where I was a writer and suddenly remembering like, I was the maths guy. <laughs> I wasn't the writer guy. I was the maths guy. That was my specialty. What am I doing? <laughs> yeah. I'm writing now. Maybe I'd send back the incredibly smug selfie I took when I was like randomly upgraded on a flight <laughs> to first ass. <laughs> <laughs> the, the most that, smarmy least praiseworthy thing. yeah just the worst thing it'd be awful it would be private transactions <laughs> sending a thing back to yourself so i've said it on a public podcast but i worry that if i sent that back to myself i would overestimate yeah what i would become <laughs> so drastically definitely as a game journalist so often you, awful <laughs> you get treated as if you're much but maybe wealthier you than you are <laughs> like, as you, maybe that's yeah. it it's a weird deterministic kind of loop there yeah, I want, actually wonder if you, like, sending back news of your accomplishments would make you more complacent and then you wouldn't achieve them. <laughs> yeah. Like, oh, it's cool, I can just coast along because apparently I get to do this. But that's kind of what I did do. <laughs> <laughs> did you receive anything from the future when you were a child? No, no, not at all, but I just sort of, like, winged it. <laughs> hmm. This is a really good question, mm. but maybe it's going to go to deeper places. The last part of this trifecta of things you can carry forward are, is knowledge, which is separate right. from skills or items. I guess uh, we've been kind of talking about knowledge. Yeah, we've been talking like about items that confirm, knowing, so I don't necessarily need yeah. to draw on that too much. I think, to be honest, I feel like there's a kind of historic and social responsibility of, like, if you gain the unique ability to transmit a bit of knowledge back in time, knowledge specifically, because it's not relevant to you, then there's a lot of fucking lives you can save. Yeah. You know what I mean? That's true. Like, so that sort of almost feels like a moot issue to me, because it would just take, like, I'd have to sit here in the present day and figure out, like, what's the one piece of information I could send back in time that saves the most number of human lives, which is actually kind of a grim thing to consider. Yeah. 
I think there's a self a self improvement tone to the question because the, framing it as like a new game plus thing where it's all about the player and it's about the players in, right so it's like personal achievements knowledge. right yeah. in the in the next life yes which I suppose is so actually my one piece of knowledge would be get your hair cut and I don't say that in a kind of like my dad kind of way but like I rebelled against that sense for a long time had very long hair for a long time but eventually one day I yeah. needed to realize that have, wearing my hair short was fine so I think if I had to send some mundane knowledge back to my past self it would be it's okay to have short hair hmm. it's not lame uh, they have a very similar like one of my biggest uh, thing I fucked up on longest was just not giving a shit about my appearance because I thought that if I did I still wouldn't look good so it was better not to even try and now in retrospect I realize no no you could look a lot better than that like thing is it was a low bar but you can definitely <laughs> like, improve I gave loads of thought to my appearance but like in a way that I don't think anyone it didn't help anybody <laughs> like I was the the I, I was about to say I was the Paisley shirt and flares kid, but I'm not sure that every school had a Paisley shirt and flares kid. <laughs> hmm. We had a uniform, so certainly not at our school. <laughs> yeah. Hmm. Anyway, that's a good question. Oh, I'd send back a slightly longer pair of trousers for my school uniform because I was bullied for having short trousers. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry it's to laugh at you there, Thomas. <laughs> <laughs> I was laughing. We can all laugh now because the healing has happened. Mm. Um, super user writes, dear brackets, please sing this. A, B, C, D, E, F, G, H, A, A, K, L, L, M, P, alphabet. In the words of Steve Jobs, good artists copy, fruity semicolon, great artists steal. What are some quick fix solutions for game mechanics you would steal from other games? In Tom Francis's case, this might be quite literal, but the rest of you, what mechanic would you make sure your dream game in X genre would have? Best, the super user of Discord. It's a really small, simple one, but I, like, Heat Signature, one of the hardest things was structure, just figuring out what the structure of the game should be. And I went big on that, and I went did a whole fucking galaxy map and... and kind of got lost in the weeds for a long time and spent ages on that trying to make it work and eventually i think it kind of did but i wish i'd uh just done it way simpler and i was playing uh i keep wanting to call it mario versus xcom it's uh, <laughs> what is it actually called rabbits and then mario inside. mario plus rabbits kingdom battle is that okay is really good it is really good uh really? yeah it's, it's fun so far and one of the things about it well one of the big advantages it has over xcom is there's no global map so you can't fuck yourself by making strategic decisions there or building the wrong base um the other thing it has over xcom is the idea that any given soldier can throw a different soldier into the air so they can do a drop attack yeah by like which is <laughs> something xcom should have i'm into this <laughs> Um, and between missions is just a pleasant stroll. But the thing it does, uh, so it basically it kind of almost has no structure. It's just a series of battles in an overworld that you walk around collecting coins and uh, there is a mild puzzle solving in the overworld. Um, but all it does with the missions is it just like these two missions are part of a chapter. And when you finish the second one, then it pops up with an end screen saying, you can be the chapter and here's how you did on mission one. Here's how you did on mission two. Here's your reward for that performance. And that's like so basic, but I never thought of doing anything like that for heat signature. If I went back to like, you know, if I just made the interior game and just made like a, uh, that loop really, really good. Um, and then wanted to add structure, 
just doing like something super basic like that would have been so fast. <laughs> and anything that's fast, you can just make it really, really good. You can just, you know, uh, iterate on it and, and make it more polished and more fun and more satisfying. And just splitting things up that way, uh, you know, if you'd, if you'd suggested it to me at the time, I would have been like, well, that doesn't add anything. That doesn't, what are you adding by saying these three are part of the campaign? Like they're still just three missions and then you do one, the fourth one is no different to those three. Um, but it turns out if you make a special screen for it and you just say those are all part of something and this is part of something new, it just feels good and just yeah. feels satisfying. Hmm. I would put a fishing minigame in everything. Ooh. I love a good fishing minigame. Or what's the best fishing minigame? Oh. I've only played World of Warcraft, I think. Oh, maybe Fable had one as well. Fable? Uh, no, sorry, not Fable. Uh, um, Fable probably did, but I'm thinking of uh, Torchlight. Mm. You mm. could, like, those from fish did different things. You could eat them and they'd turn you into stuff. Turn your dog into a crab. Yeah, you could turn your crab into, into pets, a dog. Think, yeah, that's interesting. They change your pets. And um, if you've got, like, a mega fish, you'd get, like, a monster for a pet. And then you could force your monster pet fish thing to go back to town and sell all your shit <laughs> <laughs> because that was a game that should be copied more <laughs> yeah that's a feature yeah for sure yeah. um your pet going to sell things at town that's yeah. the thing that loads of action RPGs should just steal but yeah a fishing mini game is or you know what this represents is a pace break that you choose for yourself mm. that mm. basically you opt out of the chronic pressures of the game that, that is on you to do something very calm and relaxing for a little bit yeah very very nice I wish that uh, Zelda had proper fishing. Zelda's fishing is like a frantic diving yourself and fucking uh, grab it. to kill a fish with your bare hands. <laughs> yeah, shoot it with a bow made of ice. and then Yeah. So uh, um, I've been kind of like working on a card game for quite a long time now. Uh, I had a, a paper prototype about six months ago and it, it's been working on and off. And I kind of finally got it to click this week. Um, and it was only because I needed to nick an idea from a different game. <laughs> and the, uh, it's not a video game, but I hope this counts. I had to nick the idea of players having two decks rather than one. Specifically, uh, the from new... Shadespire. From Shadespire. Yeah. Um, so Shadespire is a new kind of standalone uh, Games Workshop strategy game that we did a special podcast about. This is not just a plug, it's a genuine, you know, thing. Um, but most recently, the kind of... Um, the ability for a player to go fishing for a uh so it, in that game you have a power deck and an objective deck and your objective deck is made of cards that are like victory points you can score but that kind of seeded in my head the idea of having a card game where you have um your regular play deck but also a deck that you have to fish through for win conditions basically um really helped kind of solve quite a lot of design issues I was having all at the same time. Um, and that was a really nice feeling because it was like, huh, huh. If I just nick this idea, everything fits into place and suddenly this starts working. So that was exciting. And I think that's a, I don't know, it's a transferable thing I'd want to be in every game, but it was certainly a nice experience of like, Hmm. um, the more I kind of played and understood those games, the more things started to make sense, which is how stealing things happens. Hmm. I Something I wish uh, more developers stole is like Plants vs. Zombies. When the zombies sort of defeat one lane, they get all the way to your thing. There's a lawnmower there that then kills them all. <laughs> so you get both, like, you're not dead 
and also it kills all those zombies. In the, in the area you're having the most trouble, it gives you zero trouble, uh, but just once. And then after that, if you ever lose that lane again, you're totally screwed. And if you never use that, you still feel like you're close to failure. Um, but if you do use that, you get to carry on playing. It's not game over. And so you feel even closer to failure and it, it still feels tense. And they do a really good job of like managing difficulty that way. Hmm. Hmm. More lawnmowers. Just More lawnmowers, basically, is what we're saying. Lawnmowers. Get in trouble in Wolfenstein. <laughs> lawnmower shoots out of the wall, mows down all the Nazis, and then that wouldn't actually fine be for a while. tremendously out of character for that game. <laughs> it would just be like there'd be a lawnmower sight gag followed by quite a harrowing depiction of personal <laughs> torture. <laughs> and then a joke about poo. <laughs> but then a rousing speech about why Nazis are bad. And then a cool Mick Gordon electric guitar riff. And then a lawnmower. And then a joke about poo. And so on. Finally. Finally, it's Thomas. And he writes. It's not one of you two. I know you, I see you looking at each other like which one of you was this. <laughs> yeah, we've all had quite enough of us. <laughs> There's more Thomases in the world. I know, too many. There are more Thomases in, in heaven and earth than exist in your philosophy. But this particular Thomas writes, Dear Spooky Crate, and even spookier Crowbar, what is the weirdest slash scariest hardware failure you've had on your PC or console? Obligatory story example below. And boy, this is a good one. When I was about 11 years old, 1997, We'd gotten a new ultra-fast CD-ROM drive, 40 times speed, I believe, and I decided to try it out with one of my favourite games, X-Wing. The disc was four or five years old at this point, and I had played the game a lot in that time, so it had some damage, but it still worked up until that point. I put the disc into my ultra-fast CD-ROM drive and waited for the game to launch. The game didn't launch, but the CD drive was getting louder and louder. Finally, after about two minutes, the drive suddenly opened with no input from me, with the CD still spinning at an insanely fast speed. When the tr With the tray fully opened, the CD then <laughs> launched into the air <laughs> like a helicopter going up about 6 to 12 inches before slowly descending to the basement floor. Like a helicopter. Like a helicopter going 6 to 12 inches before slowly descending onto the basement floor. As it reached the floor, it was still spinning and starting to wobble, so it spun in place for another 30 seconds or so before wow. it came to a stop and fully settled on the floor. <laughs> The CD was unusable after this incident. <laughs> I'm really appreciating your 999 voice. <laughs> Little did she know that the X-Wing CD was about to make a fatal mistake. <laughs> what is like the modern equivalent of that for our younger listeners? Because that oh my god, because yes, that is. I don't. Think there is now, I, I saw no. I saw something like a few months ago of like. 
it was actually fascinating. Like a guy had fallen out of a plane, but his leg was tangled in a parachute. And so he's dangling from the plane, but the pilot couldn't come back and rescue him because he couldn't take his hands off the controls. And oh, people no. on the ground are figuring out how they could solve it. And it was very much a 999 style program. There was it's like, like um, dangerous the, situations. The, no, actually, do you know what it is? It's like stuff like Deadliest Catch. Mm. So I don't want to turn this to a, a huge tangent, <laughs> but um, once upon a time I was sleeping on the floor of somebody who was studying at Columbia University who could only sleep when they listened to an episode of The Deadliest Cat. <laughs> <laughs> oh no. <laughs> Which is a situation you find yourself in in sometimes at life. Mm. And that meant that one night I was sleeping underneath a table and you had to, like on the floor, <laughs> and you had to try and get to sleep as a man in a, in that voice. Cause it's, it's a voiceover voice that you hear a lot on shows are being translated for a lot of different languages. So it's kind of like generic. You know, like, if the fishermen don't bring in this crab, everyone they love will die. <laughs> kind of, like, tone that I associate very strongly with, like, Discovery Channel knockoff, uh, disaster documentaries, um, that now make me sleepy for some reason. <laughs> um, <laughs> I should say I- that. Sorry, Tom, the, go on. The 40-speed CD-ROM was flying too close to the sun. That was humanity's greatest folly. Yeah. <laughs> our hubris <laughs> and our downfall. That's that's why these days they just read at one speed. You're like, okay, that, that was far enough. <laughs> it was too fast, too deep and too greedy, like the dwarves of Moria. I was actually, when he said 40-speed, I was thinking like, God, isn't that weird that we measured things in like time speed? There was just like a universal speed. And then I remember, I think it's... It was walking speed, wasn't it? Of your average human man in God's country. <laughs> no, I think it's... um. <laughs> I think it was like an 80 minute CD would take 80 minutes to burn. Like it was the running time versus the burn time. And so one speed was like 80 minutes to, to record, to burn 80 minutes of audio. So 40 speed, very fast. I also remember when I started to get it on PC Gamer, our DVD burner was one speed. <laughs> it would take like two hours to burn the disc. <laughs> so I had to be done like two hours ahead of time. This wasn't the end of Tom Thomas's anecdote, which oh, sure. continues. Okay. <laughs> um, I should point out that I'm aware that this story may sound like total BS, <laughs> but this is how I remember it and what my 11-year-old self swears he saw. No one else was in the basement with me when it happened. <laughs> this has turned into an episode of Ghost Hunters. <laughs> this case of the next after the break, the X-Wing CD. That kills itself. <laughs> I will acknowledge, though, that this is possible that in my excitement of getting an ultra fast CD ROM drive, my imagination may have gotten the best of me. How excited were you? Happy Halloween from the country that pushed the end of daylight savings time to November to help Big Candy maximize their revenue in October. Thomas. Wait, Thomas who may well have been lying about the entire contents of this <laughs> otherwise very entertaining email. Which country is this? Story. I don't know. I'm guessing America or Canada. Okay. But less likely Canada, because as the chill America... <laughs> they wouldn't fuck with right. time. <laughs> chill America, don't fuck with time. <laughs> <laughs> That's their motto, I think. Exactly. It's on the flag. <laughs> <laughs> you can see what you like about us. We don't fuck with time. Uh, Ain't not going need for your time cops here. <laughs> it's Canada. I, my scariest hardware uh, freak out thing w- w- wasn't really funny, but... um. 
uh, I'd installed a new CPU and I'd taken great care to put thermal paste on in the correct amount. This was back when I built my own PC and it's the reason I no longer build my own PC and I just buy a pre-built thing. Um, and when I started up, it went beep, 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 like in a particular pattern. And I looked, like, obviously I turned it off and uh, was scared. And I looked up the pattern and that was the pattern for the overheating. Oh, <laughs> um, in Morse code, that was Tom. This is your grandfather and I'm trapped. <laughs> <laughs> it's neither scary nor funny. This anecdote, just to forewarn you. Um, and so I took it, the whole thing apart and I reapplied the thermal base, like took the CPU out of the motherboard and everything and did it all again. And same result, still beeping, still, I got as far as the BIOS this time. It told me the temperature was like, um, 80 degrees Celsius, like crazy, like serious danger zone. Uh, so I turned it off, like, cleaned the whole thing off a special thermal paste cleaner, used a different thermal paste, like applied that. I nearly damaged the CPU putting it back in because I was taking it out so much, like the, the needles were misaligned at one point and I almost applied force to it when it was in a, a bad position. Uh, so I nearly broke the fucking thing trying to fix this. And then I couldn't fix it. And I just sort of Googled for terms involved in what I was experiencing and discovered this uh, iteration of the motherboard's firmware has a bug where it misreports the temperature by like 20 degrees. <laughs> so it was fucking fine. There was nothing wrong with it. And I'd done it fine like three times in a row, but the software was misreporting the temperature. Hmm. And that caused me to nearly break the CPU trying to fix this non-existent problem. We had a, a case of a, a beeping PlayStation 4, and the PlayStation 4 has very sensitive touch controls if you want to eject a disc mm. or turn it on or off. Um, but this didn't stop my girlfriend being, from being quite scared when I said it was ghosts. <laughs> <laughs> We're doing it. Never say it's ghosts. And uh, I, I persisted with that fiction for a little too long, perhaps. And, uh, yeah, I mean, I've, I've learned from like persistently living with it that it's definitely changing temperatures that does it. Huh. So like if the sun falls on it and then goes, oh do you know God. what causes temperatures to change? <laughs> ghosts. Ghosts. And also the sun. Sun ghosts. <laughs> the most dangerous ghosts of all. The also the ordinary sun. sun that we see every day also <laughs> does that. Um, but it's still like, my girlfriend doesn't, <laughs> she doesn't believe in ghosts except Okay, she says once that she believes in ghosts a little bit. You know, how people <laughs> do. It's like, oh, about 15%. I was like, what do you mean 15%? <laughs> like, what is that as a percentage of belief in ghosts? I didn't think is it, they're real or not. Is it that no. thing where, like, ghosts aren't real until the point that the possibility is introduced that they might be real, and at which suddenly, point they become exponentially real? Definitely real. Because I feel like Emma and Pip might have some things in common. Yeah, interesting. Hmm. Mm. Uh, but anyway, after trying to persuade, um, Ems that <laughs> PlayStation 4 was wanted, uh, a, I, I explained my sun theory and now she's subscribed to that instead. <laughs> just gradually after it's just it's ob- the sun ghost. But it did take a period of observational kind of like, you know, <laughs> just observing it and understanding that that was probably what was happening to it. Yeah. It did, um, I guess I have to answer this one was like, um, I built Pip's PC, current PC when we were dating and, um, and, it it started to die like earlier this year, like in quite a spectacular way. And I can't remember exactly what it was. Now it was something to do with the, it was, um, the, it was one of those PC problems where it feels really obvious initially that the problem is the, the power supply, but 
then you move away from that because the symptoms are nothing to do with the power supply. It's stuff like the hardware selectively running certain programs and, and like the hard drives sporadically appearing and, and these kind of strange issues. And um, usually when that happens, what it comes down to is things are getting inconsistent amounts of power. It's normally a poltergeist in that scenario. <laughs> well, yes, exactly. And so, and I was sat with like, uh, like, pips pc like splayed out on my floor like connected but it's innards all laid out with a monitor up trying to run diagnostics off like a ubuntu usb stick and i was trying to figure out what it was because i was in that mind state where you don't want to replace something big like a power supply you want to figure it out at a kind of basic level um and and Every time I would look up and try and explain, like, to Pip, like, I think it might be this, this, and this, she would go, it's haunted. <laughs> and, and walk away again. And, um, and she was right in the end. It was the power supply. Um, <laughs> uh, the other thing to this that sprung to mind when the question was asked was, um, simply the time when I was playing the original Neverwinter Nights with my sister. And, um, uh, my sister, who I, I, I love very dearly, but like has never really given a shit about PC hardware, just decided to see what would happen if she pressed the sleep button every time I tried on my PC, every time I tried to do anything. And uh turns out that causes your PC to suddenly behave in a way that you don't think is like, why is this happening? Like, what is going wrong with my computer? Why is this suddenly happening? Why have I lost all this saved progress? Because my PC's just decided to switch it off, itself off. It's just because your sister loves pressing the sleep button. Was she pressing it in a stealthy way? She was like sneaking? No, she was actually leaning over me on so the you keyboard. So you could see her press pre- the button? Yeah. <laughs> okay. um, but like, it took, I was a teenager at the time and it took a moment. To it's a button on the keyboard? It. Yes. Ah, okay. But it, it was on, you know, you know, every keyboard has those buttons you don't press. Mm. Like the pause and rewind and. Yeah, I wouldn't know what they are. Yeah. One <laughs> of them. Look at them. One of them had a picture of the moon on it. <laughs> <laughs> Send PC to moon. <laughs> exactly. To nearest moon. And that was just the kind of like create inexplicable hardware. <laughs> but it turned out it was just my sister pressing the moon button. <laughs> so that's the other thing is it might not be a ghost. It might just be your sister pressing the moon button. <laughs> well, you know, some check for that. Beware. Yeah. Basically, if you're having a harder problem, but the harder problem occurs every time someone you're sat with presses a button. <laughs> then it's definitely a ghost. It, it's probably a ghost. It'd or be some a, ghosts. Yeah, it, it'd be some ghosts. That is all of the questions, anecdotes, and so on that we have time for. Very well. Okay, thanks, thanks <laughs> accepted Tom. This. I was just waiting for a reaction from a Tom. If you'd like to send us a question... For a future episode of the podcast, you can do so by emailing us at questions at com. You can also check us out on YouTube, CreightonCrowbar.com. Blah, 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 fuck. <laughs> <laughs> you can also check us out on YouTube, youtube.com forward slash CreightonCrowbar, where you'll find the latest episodes of our Bloodborne diary series. I think it's been on a little bit of a run recently. There's some good ones recently. We have we some good episodes, Tom. Yeah, we do. We'll probably miss this weekend, I'm very sad to say. But um mm. we are trying to get on back on track. I've been extremely busy. It's mostly my fault. But <clears throat> we will get back on the Bloodborne horse and ride that horse at a dog. Yes. Thanks, Tom. 
for backing me up on that bit. <laughs> um, you can also hang out with our amazing community on Discord, <clears throat> the link to which is on our website, createcrowbar.com, uh, where we discuss things like games and other things. That's it. Yeah. Um, if you would like to support the podcast, every podcast we do weekly is supported by our Patreon backers. You find out more information on that on patreon.com forward slash great and crowbar. Needless to say, your Patreon support is very much appreciated. And to reiterate, every dollar of Patreon support we receive for the main podcast feeds through to spin-offs and fun things like the Bloodborne show, like Miniatures Monthly, like Little Grey Cells, which is our new Pyro podcast. We've got a little network of things going and everything benefits from your support. So thank you very much if you do back us on Patreon. And if you don't, consider it. Uh, even if... You don't want... I, I don't know what I was going to say. I don't know <laughs> what don't I was to. going to say. <laughs> <laughs> Consider it. I'm not going to tell you it's what decision to, to arrive at. That's up to you. That's not your your brain. That's not my brain. Anyway, moving on. Another thing you can do that's very helpful to the podcast, if you don't want to support us on Patreon, is to review, leave a review or rating or something or whatever the fuck on iTunes or wherever the hell. <laughs> because apparently those things help. And um yeah, thank you to the people who actually have uh checked earlier today and uh a few people have left some nice reviews for the oh, wow. And um yeah, thank you so much for taking that effort because I know that it given the iTunes interface it's quite <laughs> Yes, honestly God, one of the reasons this wasn't important <laughs> but it is didn't really seem important to me is because um I didn't even know how to find <laughs> the place where this happened. <laughs> right. But if you're listening to this on your iPod right now or your iPad or your iThing and there's a button that's got like stars on it. Just push that. <laughs> push as many stars as you think it's worth, but just push it because mm. it does help. So thank you very much if you've done yeah, that. Thank you already. very much. Yeah, much appreciated. Finally, to wrap up, if you would like to follow us as individuals, you can find Tom Senior at, at Ludo Eludio. He says it like Officer. it's a question, but it's nothing but a fact. <laughs> I, Tom Francis, am at Pentadact, P-E-N-T-A-D-A-C-T. And I, Chris Thurston, I always said Tom Francis. <laughs> it's infectious. <laughs> Everyone's doing it. And I, Tom Francis, <laughs> I'm on Twitter, at C Thurston, that's C-T-H-U-R-S-T-E-N. Thanks for, for listening, everybody. Yeah. <laughs>